I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as Chinese legends, dystopian futures, and director's bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. And this is episode 62, recorded on June 14th, 2021. As far as current news, one crazy announcement after the last couple episodes, but they're doing a remake of Stephen King's Christine. How do we keep timing shit like this? <laughs> I don't know. It's just dumb luck. Doesn't work when I buy a lottery ticket, though. <laughs> Brian Fuller is writing and directing. And if you don't know who that is, it's the guy that did Dead Like Me, Pushing Daisies, and most recently Hannibal, which is his big show that. You know, oh, I'm okay, sure a okay. couple people might have heard of. He's never done a movie before, I don't think. So this will be his first movie. So we'll just have to see how it goes. And we got a 50-50 shot. There's apparently a Evil Dead game coming out that I had no clue. And since this week is fake E3 week, where all the video <laughs> game trailers are coming out like it was E3, they released it and it looks badass. The graphics are amazing. It's gory as hell. Bruce Campbell's doing Ash's voice. You get to play as Ash and his friends, and the other player gets to play as the evil Kandarian demon host, and you can float around the map and, like, Sam Raimi vision and, like, activate shit and raise corpses up. And, yeah, the other people have to try to find the pages of the Necronomicon and destroy them before you kill them. So are our choices uh, latest gen console and PC? I believe so. Actually, it'll be out on PS5 and PS4. Open new tab, Josh's Christmas list. (laughs) (laughs) Watch trailer later. Looks cool. There is a Castlevania spinoff cartoon coming out on Netflix. So they just ended Castlevania, but I guess it did well enough. They want to keep it coming. Now, if we could just get a new game. Yeah, a good new game. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. Witcher season two dropped a teaser trailer, and I'm pretty excited about that one. Eh. I'll check it out. Uh, the first season, I was like, yeah, yeah, kind of, not really. <laughs> uh, okay, I loved it, so I'm excited. I started off so happy, and then it was just kind of, that's what happens to me with everything, man. Like, I'm I'm so cynical, and I'm so jaded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Let's see how jaded you feel about this one. They announced that Kevin Bacon is going to be playing the villain in the Toxic Avenger remake. So he's going to get his ass kicked? No. <laughs> I mean, I'm, <laughs> dude, I'm fine with Kevin Bacon as a bad guy. I'm, I'm, I am terrified that this is not, it's just not going to have enough camp. Bacon Blair can probably bring the camp. <sighs> I have no idea. He needs to go murder party, not Blue Ruin. Exactly. And I, I don't know how he's going to throw those dice. And the last bit of news I wanted to say is Quiet Place 2 is the first movie in the pandemic era to break $100 million. Way to go, A Quiet Place 2. Um, have you seen it yet? I have not. I'm going to see it with my wife next week on vacation. I am not going to say anything about it. Then we saw it, uh, Saturday. Okay. We went to the first showing and it was already sold out. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Cause you know, we go fucking matinee, <laughs> right? And, uh, the second showing was half full. So that was kind of weird <laughs> to be that early in the day and have that many people in there. Um, but I'll wait till you've seen it before I say anything about it. Okay. I love the first one. So. The first one shocked me. Like, that was a breath of fresh air. As far as announcements go, next episode's probably going to be late because I'm going on vacation. Oh, yeah. It's about that time of year. (laughs) 
And I got a few things as far as updates and corrections go. For one, I forgot to go into the plot of the six conspirators theory all the way through, like I said I was. I did mention how confusing it was that the ghost went after Andy and Stevie, but I forgot to mention that Blake also showed up at Nick's house earlier in the movie and almost killed him right before the clock rolled over. And John Carpenter's attentions might have been for the ghost to kill the descendants of the six conspirators. But it looks like through all the reshoots, they had the ghost basically attacking everyone and screwing that plot point up. Hey, gore over substance, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it, anybody that was attacked that couldn't have been one of the six conspirators descendants or the number went too high, were all reshoot. So, yeah. And on that note, I was pretty sure I'd heard John Carpenter say the thing about Blake going after the six descendants, so I decided to fact check myself and find what interview I found it in, and I couldn't find it. But I did, however, <laughs> confirm that in the novelization of the film based off the script, it says that explicitly. Okay. So that might have been where I got it, or I might have actually saw it in one of the many John Carpenter interviews I've watched in the past month and a half. And I thought this was kind of funny. I kept saying that not as glasses were Ray-Bans as a joke on the episode. And I was going to type a correction saying that I was being facetious and that they are not actually Ray-Bans and for Ray-Ban to please not sue me. And then through the research, I discovered that they are actually Ray-Bans drifter shades, which are no longer made. So there you go. They're Ray-Bans. Yeah, I thought you knew. I didn't know you were doing it as a joke. <laughs> Man, I call any sunglasses in the 80s Ray-Bans. <laughs> But yeah, imagine my surprise. And then I was sad that you couldn't buy them. <laughs> eBay, man. eBay. Pay way too much for them. And this is an update for a different episode, but we had a listener named Gabe email us about the Annabelle episode. And he's a future filmmaker and screenplay writer, and he, he's working on some movies now and doing his thing. But he said he likes to read scripts of movies that he likes for further research. And he had read the Annabelle script and he linked it to me. And he said that Mia was initially supposed to be the one that jumped out the window and died, okay. which would have made a lot more sense with all the dialogue at the beginning about if you have to choose between me and the baby, you always pick the baby, yeah. right? And apparently the test audiences or the studio or somebody thought it was too depressing and made them change it and made it where Evelyn jumped out the window. But Evelyn wasn't actually even in the script. If you go to the script and you search for her name, it does not appear in the entire script. Holy shit. They added her just to have cannon fodder to die. And honestly, she was one of the most relatable characters in the movie, I felt like. Like, she had, like, the story and you felt bad for her. And The whole thing does a good job of making it feel real. And she was more of that without making it go weird. So, yeah. And then in a follow-up email from him, he was saying, and I don't have it right in front of me, I'm sorry, but I believe he said that there's somebody named Carl mentioned in the original script that's not in the movie, and that's the guy that owned the bookstore, and he just helped Mia find occult books. Oh, okay. And that was about it. But she spends the entire part of the movie at the end by herself in the house and not with Evelyn there in the original script. Gotcha. And I think all of that would have been a lot better. And that makes me want to, you know, kind of look through scripts on some of the movies when we cover them sometimes. But thanks for the update because it's uh, cool to get those. Yeah, thanks. And as far as what we watched, I, I seem to have a short list, but I guess it is a lot of stuff. My wife and I watched all of Sweet Tooth. Is that the furry baby thing? <laughs> Man, you make it sound weird. But yes, it is the post-apocalyptic show with hybrid animal children. Okay. I liked it. The wife wants to watch it. I'm 50-50. I finally started the final season of Castlevania. I'm about halfway through. More of the same, but I mean that in a good way. Okay. 
So I can't wait to finish that. And this is going to be on Josh's list too, but he and I went and saw Conjuring 3. Yes, we did. It's so new. I don't want to spoil anything. And we probably have slightly different thoughts, but I thought it was a pretty damn good movie. I did not think it felt like a Conjuring movie at all. No, it didn't feel like a Conjuring movie. I expected it to be more insane. Like it would have been okay for it to be insane. I don't want to rag on it at all. I really, I feel like I need to give it a second watch because I really am undecided overall. And since it's on HBO Max, I can give it a second watch this week. It really reminded me of the feel of True Detective season one. So it was more like a crime detective thriller type thing that happened to have the Warrens in it. And they knocked it out the park as usual. Yeah. They're the best part of the movie. They always are. But it really was missing that haunted house vibe and them trying to help save a family. And yeah, you yeah. got a cool supernatural thriller movie, but I went to go see a Conjuring movie. I don't know. So I guess maybe Annabelle 3 is Conjuring 3 to me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so what'd you watch? A Quiet Place 2. <laughs> um Conjuring 3. <laughs> and uh, that really was it. It's been rough. I mean, I watched the movies for the podcast, but it's just been, it's been a <laughs> fucking blur. But I guess if you don't have anything to add, it's movie time. Yay, movie time. I'm sorry, guys. I'm really cracked out and not because I've been doing meth. I'm just sleep deprived. So keep me in check there, buddy. Let's go. Oh, and if I randomly yell, you have to let me know because I'm deaf in my right ear right now from an ear infection. (laughs) True story. I got a new pair of headphones and I was hooking them up to record the episode. and I was mad because the right side didn't work. And then I remembered I couldn't hear out of my right ear. (laughs) And both the movies that we're going to cover today aren't horror movies, but John Carpenter wasn't known just for doing horror movies. He did crazy fucking action movies, too. So you got to throw those in there. I call these dude guy movies. Dude guy movies. I like it. So my movie I'm excited to cover. I've been talking it up is Big Trouble in Little China. I've been wanting to cover this one almost as long as we've had the podcast. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I love it. And I don't really have a backstory because this is the third episode on John Carpenter. I have lots of tidbits that I'm going to do throughout the movie, but I don't have anything crazy to say at the beginning. Other than I wanted to mention at what part of his career it was. The film came out in 86. So that was his first movie after Starman. Oh, wow. And his last big budget movie before he decided to go back indie and make Prince of Darkness and they live. So he went Halloween. Somebody's watching me. Elvis, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble. Just to kind of let you know where he was going in his career through all that. (laughs) And this was a big budget movie. It was 20 something million dollars. I heard different versions of 20 something in different interviews over different decades. So, you know, it, it gets a little jostled in there, I'm sure. But that was a pretty big budget for the 80s for this kind of movie. And I think it only made 11 million. So it bombed at the box office, but it became a huge cult favorite afterwards. Kurt Russell said on the commentary that this is one of the most commonly referenced movies people do when they walk up to him, especially if he's in an elevator. (laughs) But they had a lot of fun making it. 20th Century Fox bought the rights to make the movie. I don't think they knew what John and Kurt were trying to make. And (laughs) they thought they were getting a different movie and they couldn't understand why Kurt Russell's character wasn't this badass. And they were trying to explain, no, no, he's the sidekick. He's not the hero, (laughs) you know, and they just weren't getting it. And 
John was really excited they let him do it because he was real big into kung fu movies and Chinese culture, and it was something that really hadn't been done. And this was the 80s, and he had an almost entirely Chinese cast, which people didn't do that a lot back then. Yeah. And it was funny. I heard him say that he was used to the right coming after him when he made a movie. But then he made Big Trouble and Little China and the left came after him because it was inappropriate, like, <laughs> uh, the way he handled Chinese culture. And he's like, I had all Chinese people working. And I don't know, it kind of made me upset. So I asked everybody and, and they were like, no, 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 we're making a good movie here. Let's keep at it, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, he said it was the, the first time he had the left come after him because, you know, he, he gets a little political sometimes. But yeah, just a little. But before I dive into the other nuggets, I'll cover the the cast and crew, and we'll go back in. Like I said, Big Trouble in Little China, 1986. So the movie's, of course, directed by John Carpenter, and I'm not going to go over his credits again. <laughs> it was written by, and I'm doing quotation marks because I'm going to go into this further. It was written by Gary Goldman and David Weinstein as the story by writers, okay? And Gary Goldman did Total Recall, both the original and the remake, and Next, and a couple other movies. David Weinstein did just this. And then it was adapted by W.D. Richter, who did the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1979 Dracula, Stephen King's Needful Things, and that movie Stealth that came out like 10 years ago. Oh, okay. There's a little bit of drama with the writers that I heard about, and I'll go into that in in a bit. Sounds like there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> the cast, of course, we got Kurt Russell. And I am going to go over his credits again because he has so many movies and I can't remember which ones I randomly picked. <laughs> but of course, The Thing and Escape from New York and L.A. But who can forget Captain Ron? Everyone. Which John Carpenter would not <laughs> let him forget Captain Ron during the entire commentary. They spent more time talking about each other's kids and hanging out than they did talking about the movie. It was great. Sky High, which I love. Death Proof, which we've covered. Bone Tomahawk which I haven't seen yet, but here's really good. Oh, you need to see that. Hateful Eight, which I also haven't seen yet. I feel really bad about that one. I haven't seen it either. Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which he was bigger than life character on that one, and I thought he was perfect for it. It honestly felt like a John Carpenter type character, but I guess it's because James Gunn was making the movie, and James Gunn's a huge Carpenter fan. I don't know. I feel like he went all the way with it. All of that, yes. <laughs> and like I regularly say, like a broken record, he is Santa to my kids in the Christmas Chronicles movies on Netflix, which is what he said is the only thing he's going to do. I also found out he's in a lot of the Fast and the Furious movies I haven't seen as Mr. Nobody, including the new one that's about to come out. Oh, yeah. And we also have Kim Cattrall in the movie. And... I always remember her from Porky's. <laughs> it's so bad to go to that, but I just always think of her howling like a dog in that. <laughs> that is a rite of passage for males our age, all right? <laughs> Mannequin, which I'm not ashamed to admit, I love that movie. Holy shit, that's what I really recognize her from. <laughs> yes, I love that movie in the 80s. Okay, and okay. of course, she's famous from Sex in the City. What's that? Exactly. And I wouldn't replace her with anybody else in this movie, but apparently the studio wanted to. They didn't like how like sure of herself she was and like how strong she was. And I think they wanted a doe-eyed love character, but that wasn't what they were going for in this movie, man. They just didn't know. Yeah. I did a bad job of this because of my notes. Kurt Russell is playing Jack Burton and Kim Cattrall is playing Gracie Law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's important. And then we have Dennis Dunn as Wang and he was in Year of the Dragon and The Last Emperor. Remember those names. 
And he was also in Prince of Darkness. But other than that, I didn't really recognize anything else on the list, but I really like him in this movie. And he's your hero, guys. He's the star and hero of the film. You have to get (laughs) your head behind that when you watch the movie. And there's a lot of people in this movie. I'm just going to directly name two more people just because they have pretty extensive bodies of work or at least very memorable character actors. First, James Hong, 441 acting credits so far. Damn, that may be. I think that's the record. I think that's the record on this podcast for sure. And the list is way too extensive to mention, but I do want to point out who's in Blade Runner and he's Mr. Ping in all the Kung Fu Panda movies. And if you just think of a large video game that you love that was successful or a very successful animated TV show or movie not made by Disney and even some made by Disney, he probably did a voice in it. Big voice actor. And he plays Lopan in this movie, who is the main bad guy and inspiration for something else. But I'll get to that in a minute. And the other actor I want to mention is Victor Wong, who plays Egg Shin. Love the character in this movie. But he's, of course, from Tremors, Prince of Darkness, Three Ninjas. He's the grandpa that trains all the ninjas in all the movies. Oh, yeah. Passed away shortly after that. And then he was also in The Last Emperor in Year of the Dragon with Dennis Dunn. And special effects. There was a lot of people that worked on this, but the supervisor and the main brain behind it, from what I heard, was Richard Edlund. And I think we've mentioned him on this show before, probably the Poltergeist episode. Yep. He worked for ILM, did Star Wars, Poltergeist, Indiana Jones movies, and so much more. And then he left ILM and started Boss Studios, where he's most famous for this and Ghostbusters, which both have really impressive special effects that hold up to this day. And other fun stuff I saw on the list was Monster Squad and Fright Night. Yeah, yeah. Actual, like, monster effects and creature effects and stuff. So that's really cool. Yeah, and I I don't know how you watched this, and I don't know how it was when it came out, but the Blu-ray special edition, which is what I ended up picking up used to watch this, it looks so good. (laughs) Like, it, I mean, just the quality of the, the filmed material, it does not look like it was shot in 86 just it looks that good <laughs> i can't get over how yeah. visually appealing it is to see a movie that old look that good on a fucking hd transfer and it's because at that time it was a big budget and he got to use top of the line camera and film and do the movie the way he wanted to because this is when they were still trying to let him do whatever he wanted and hoping that he would reinvent halloween basically and have that huge <laughs> success again and he did with almost every movie he made it was just after it was in theaters <laughs> like kurt russell thanked his career to home video because yeah. all these movies he did with john carpenter because this is his fourth movie out of five that he did with john carpenter this is the fourth time they'd collaborated together in in like less than a decade <laughs> yeah but a couple of little tidbits of info, and then I'm going to dive in the movie where I have more of it. But honestly, this was the main reason I wanted to cover John Carpenter after already doing Halloween, right? Like, I'd already done Halloween. I wanted to do Big Trouble in Little China. This is how you do it. And he's a master of horror, so we had to cover him anyways. But this was, like, the main movie. I had to make sure I got this. A really interesting fact about the movie is that it was originally a Western. And Jack Burton rode into town on his horse, and his horse got stolen. And he had to go track down his horse. And it was the same thing with the Chinese mysticism and legends and, and, and mostly the same stuff just in the Wild West. And John Carpenter wanted to make it modern. And that's how you went from Gary Goldman and David Weinstein wrote it to W.D. Richter adapted it. And it's because he took their screenplay and redid it modern. 
And Gary and David were angry because they said basically Jack Burton and Lopan were the only things that remained out of their original script. And it was really fascinating on the commentary because it was like 15 years after the movie came out, I think. And they were talking about how there was a big issue with writers going on in 86 around that time and writers getting mad about directors changing their work. And John said, I'm also a writer. I don't always direct movies that I write. And that's just something you accept. You write the screenplay, you hand it on, the director's going to do what he wants with it. Right. <laughs> and that was a real big deal. And they fought Richter getting a credit and John had to fight to get him a credit because he had to get approval from like the guild from the writer's guild or whatever to put him on there as an adapted by. Oh, damn. Because he wasn't even going to get accredited, and it was his, his movie that they were filming, basically. So we could have had opium din, dens and Chinese slave labor building the, the railroad. And I'm not saying that as a slight. I mean, that was the, the West Coast yeah. at a, a certain time in the past. I like this idea better. <laughs> no, no, I definitely do, too. And it was interesting because they were doing the commentary during the big writer strike that happened, you know, however many years ago. Oh, nice. And what the writers were fighting for, and I don't actually know if they got this. I wanted to research. But what John said the writers were fighting for is they wanted a rule put in where they had to be on set for all rehearsals and the shooting of the movie to make sure the director didn't change their movie that much. No, that stifles creativity. Exactly. And that's their argument also is their creativity gets stifled. But you can always see the original screenplay still. <laughs> and Kurt said he thinks it'd be a good idea to have the writers on set for the rehearsals, but he's like, it seems like that would just slow the movie down. And John's like, yeah, you think, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was kind of fascinating. And like I said, 20th century Fox is who made this movie and it didn't really feel like they knew what to do with it. But initially they thought it was going to be like the biggest blockbuster of the year. They thought it was going to be huge. They loved the idea. They were so into it. They were talking to John and Kurt about this huge marketing campaign they were going to do for the movie. And then they finished the movie and saw nothing. <laughs> there was no marketing for the movie. They used a $3 million marketing budget. And even by 1986 standards, that wasn't a lot of money, apparently, for marketing. No. And Kurt doesn't ever remember seeing an ad for it. He said, it doesn't even look like me on the posters because it's that, like, drawn style. And he blames that, but they think it's because they didn't know what the fuck to do with the movie. And it didn't help that this came out and went against Aliens. <laughs> this is this is like the thing going up against E.T. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? And Kurt was also worried about being in the movie because his last few movies that he was put in as the leading man all flopped. And he was starting to think that he was cursed. And he told John that he's like, John, I know you want me in this movie, but I don't think you should do it. And John basically told him he didn't give a shit about the money that he was making a movie that he wanted to make. And he wanted Kurt in it again, just like Kevin Smith. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of funny because, well, one, Kurt Russell's a fantastic actor and hugely famous and I'm sure drew people into this movie, even though Kurt didn't think he was at the time. And two, John didn't say, no, it's not you, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a lot more, but the rest of it's in the movie. So we open up with Egg Shin, a tour bus driver from San Francisco, Chinatown, meeting with his attorney. And the attorney wants to know if Egg Shin is a dangerous man, like all the others are saying. And he keeps asking, where is Jack Burton? Egg says that Jack Burton is a hero and that everyone is in his debt and they need to just leave him alone, right? And the attorney wants to know if Egg Shin actually believes in monsters, ghosts, sorcery, and Chinese black magic. And he says that he does, and the attorney wants to know why he should believe him or how he should believe him. And then we see Egg Shin basically shoot dark side force lightning in between his hands. <laughs> 
See? That was nothing. But that's how it always begins. Very small. After he explains that the tour bus is the bus for tourists. <laughs> yes, yes. And this entire opening scene was shot after the fact, after the movie was done at the studio's behest because they were still confused on why Jack didn't look like the hero. So they wanted a scene inserted at the very beginning of the movie, specifically stating that he was a hero and everyone was in his debt. John said, fuck it and did it and put it in. <laughs> Racist ass Hollywood. Actually, I don't know if John did it because I don't know if I've said this on any of the other episodes, but Tommy Lee Wallace, his friend who helped him do a lot of the effects on the original Halloween and also was the shape sum in the original Halloween and the director of Halloween three season, the witch was almost always John Carpenter's second unit director. And I probably should have said, uh, that. okay. Also the guitars of the coupe de Vils. more on that later. <laughs> Well, we then go to the opening credits and we can see Kurt Russell's character, Jack Burton, talking on the CB while driving the Pork Chop Express, which is so cleverly named. And I'll get into that in a minute, too. And he delivers some great one liners. And we're going to have a problem on this episode because this is one of the most quotable movies of all time. And I'm going to say some of them and I'm going to put some in. And there's going to be a lot of quotes, and I'm sorry, but I'm reading these two. So the first one he says is, like I told my last wife, I says, honey, I never drive faster than I can see. Besides that, it's all in the reflexes. And that comes in play later. And I love that one. And then here's the long one, but it's great. And it kind of comes into play later, too. But he says, when some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck and taps the back of your favorite head up against the barroom wall, looks you crooked in the eye and asks you if you paid your dues, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye. And you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir. The check is in the mail. And I love the slams your favorite head up against the wall like you have more than one. Yeah. <laughs> and he's saying all this in a bad John Wayne impersonation, which is intentional. And I remember hearing that when I was younger. And I remember thinking that very vividly when I watched this movie when I was younger, because I've seen this movie. God, it is in the list of most times I've ever seen a movie in my life. I watch this one a lot. And I don't know, as an adult, I really don't hear the John Wayne thing as much as I used to. Yeah, it's not. It's not overt. It's obvious, but it's not overt. I feel like they made a bigger deal of it in the 80s and the 90s, and I remembered it that way. But, like, as an adult, I've I've never gone back and been like, well, he, he's not like, you little lady. He's not doing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it, it's definitely in there. And it was an homage because it was supposed to be a Western originally. And let's be honest, John usually has some sort of Western vibes in almost every movie he makes, right? And, I mean, you can see it. He's got a saddlebags and everything, and he he talks like John Wayne, so. But at this point, we see Jack make his delivery in Chinatown, and he literally carries live pigs in his truck. <laughs> I've never noticed that before until I watched it last night. I've seen this movie a hundred times. I never noticed that the pigs came out of his truck. The name Pork Chop Express is hilarious now. It all makes sense because I didn't fucking notice it at all. <laughs> Think how I feel, man. I've seen this movie so many times. But Jack gets some chow and some booze, and we can see him gambling with the locals, including his pal Wang, played by Dennis Dunn. And they appear to play through the night until sunrise. And it seems like Jack's cleaned house and everybody's quitting and leaving and getting pissed. And now that it's just Jack and Wang sitting at the table, we can see Wang get real serious. And he says he needs to win all his money back. And Jack says that he thought they were a couple of old friends, racial differences aside. You know, both being <laughs> Californians. 
<laughs> just the shit he says is great. And Wang wants to bet Jack, nothing or double, that he can cut a glass bottle in half with a meat cleaver that they had sitting on the table, which I know this is the food district in Chinatown, but it seems like you wouldn't want to play drunk poker with a meat cleaver on the table, right? It just seems like a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. That's how you bet digits. <laughs> but Wang lets Jack know that he has exactly $1,148 in his hand and double or nothing, he can cut the bottle in half. And Jack's like, sure, whatever, dude, but you're going to use this bottle. And he empties his bottle and hands it to him. And Wang pulls the meat cleaver up, serious as fuck, and just slams it down onto the bottle and launches it right at Jack's face. And he just catches it. It's all in the reflexes. And that goes back to his reflexes comment earlier. He's got skills. I know, I know. And it's really cool how they did it, too. I'm sure it was a reverse shot or something. But I don't know. His facial expressions when he does a lot of these action scenes, it's, it's because he, he looks confident and like he thinks he's a badass while also being unaware on how he actually just did it yeah. at all times. <laughs> and that's his character to a T. But Wang doesn't have the money on him to pay Jack. He has it at his restaurant because Jack's like, come on, you got more money than me. Because he's like, oh, I'm just a poor old Chinese boy. You know, like he's, he's fucking with Jack. And he's like, you own a restaurant. You're doing better than I am. He's like, oh, I just mean I don't have it on me. But he says he has to go to the airport to pick up a soon-to-be bride first. And Jack's like, fuck no, you're not going to the airport while you owe me, you know, $2,200 or whatever. <laughs> and Jack says, Get in the truck. I'll drive you because he wants to make sure he gets his cash. They're old friends, but I guess they don't trust each other with money. <laughs> we find out that Wang has known his soon-to-be bride since they were kids and that she's from Peking, China, I think specifically, but she's from China. And Jack's like, oh, wow, I've never done that before. <laughs> so he's talking <laughs> with all the different exotic women that he's been with, but never a Chinese woman, which is just, I don't know, his character's great in this movie because he doesn't know what the fuck he's saying at any point in time. <laughs> exactly. And Jack points out that Wang is nervous and Wang's like, oh, God, that's why I couldn't cut the bottle. My mind and spirit were not as one. Right. <laughs> so he knows he can cut that bottle in half. He says he does it at home all the time, because when he says that, Jack's like, sure, have me over for dinner sometime then. Right. <laughs> we cut to the airport where Jack and Wang are waiting for Miao Yen to get off the plane. And Jack is immediately attracted to Gracie Law, played by Kim Cattrall, that he's checking out from across the airport, who is also waiting to pick up someone. And Wang's just looking off, waiting for his fiance. And he says, she has the most beautiful green eyes, Jack. And Jack's like, really? How can you tell from here? And he's trying to take his shades <laughs> off to look at Gracie Law. And he's like, not her. I mean, Meow Yin. And that's Gracie Law. And she's trouble. Stay away from her, right? <laughs> so Jack immediately heads over to Gracie to put the moves on her. And it does not work out for him. And then some guy comes by and bumps into him and he tries to get tough with the guy and his group of friends. And Gracie says, don't do that. They're the Lords of Death, a street gang from Chinatown. We then see Tara get off the plane, which is the girl that Gracie was waiting for. And the Lords of Death start to go for her. And Wang's trying to fight his way to Miao Yen's. He saw her get off the plane and get her, her box right of her stuff. And the Lords of Death try to grab Tara and Jack sees this and he attempts to stop them. But the guy pulls a butterfly knife out on him and a retractable baton. And Jack wants to know where the fuck that shit came from. And he starts doing like martial arts shit at him. And Jack backs up and gets, I guess they were Cobra Kai people because they swept the legs and they took him out. Right. <laughs> and Tara got away. So they needed to grab somebody because they were there to abduct a girl. So they just grabbed Meow Yen and run out the door with her. Wing and Jack chase after him, but they're too late. And Jack's like, son of a bitch must pay. I don't know what it is about that line, but I love it. And, and he says that because they almost run him over with a car. And on the commentary, Kurt Russell said, 
I don't, it was some kind of weird shot. How'd you make us do it? And John's like, it's a re- reverse shot. I told you that you guys had to act backwards. So they reverse shot it. And he's like, I didn't know how the hell it was going to work out, but it looked great when we were done. <laughs> <laughs> but Wang says that he knows where the gangs hang out in Chinatown. And he's like, Jack, I could not ask you to. And Jack cuts him off and says, where, where is it? Right. Cause he, he's pissed now. He wants revenge too. <laughs> but we then see Egg Shen giving a tour in his bus through Chinatown and Jack and Egg almost run into each other. And I think this was probably just to give us our initial introduction to Egg before the opening scene was added. Okay. Just so you can see him real quick and, and know that he's part of the town. And Wang and Jack cut down a narrow alley to try and find the Lord to Death's car. And Kurt actually had to learn how to drive the rig because John wanted to have too many shots of him in the truck. And there wasn't enough room in the sets to pull him on a dolly. So he had to drive the truck through. And it's a very narrow set. And you can tell there's a couple times where he like suddenly stops. And he's supposed to stop there, but it's because he also was cutting a corner and almost hit a wall. <laughs> and speaking of that set, they made that set for this movie, but they never got rid of the set. Not John Carpenter, but the studio never got rid of the set. And it was used in lots of music videos, including a Janet Jackson video is the main one people bring up. But it's like very obvious when you see any of the videos online that it's the big trouble in Little China set. Okay. That's, that's, there's parts of my brain that hadn't connected the dots and now they're being connected. <laughs> but the alley they drive into, the reason why I had to suddenly stop is because there's a funeral going on through the alley and it's a group of fighting tongs called the Chang Sings. And Wang lets Jack know that they're the good guys. And tongs were like groups of Chinese clans so to speak, that would go to war and fight each other in older times. But the term carried through into Chinatown because the street gangs would fight each other and they would still be considered tongs. Oh, okay. Anyways, a little piece of history there for you. Like I said, Wang lets Jack know they're the good guys. And then Jack and his mirror notices some guys that are in black and red because the Ching Sings were in white and yellow, right? But he sees some guys in black and red sneaking up behind him. And Wang lets them know that they're the Wing Kong and they're enemies of the... Chang Sings. And I think he says they're animals or something. And then yeah. <laughs> you can see Jack start quickly rolling up the window and pulling out a knife, right? As both the gangs line up in the alley. And Jack wants to know what's going on. And Wang lets him know that it's a Chinese standoff and not to make a sound. <laughs> and at this point, they break out into a brawl and start whooping each other's ass. And they're shooting guns. They're engaging in melee combat. One of the guys has a bandolier and pistols, and he pulls it up like a, like a gunslinger. I'm sure that was like a Western throwback. Had to be. But the fight breaks out, and the Cheng Sings are whooping the Wing Kong's ass. And we see a bunch of green light and smoke start to bust out in the middle of the alley. And both groups of the Tongs run and take cover next to Jack's truck. And we're now introduced to the three storms, thunder, lightning, and rain. And I'm not going to go through their full credits, but there was some interesting stuff about a couple of these guys. Carter Wong, who played Thunder, was in several martial arts films, but he trained the Hong Kong police in hand-to-hand combat. Nice. Thought that was kind of interesting. Peter Kwong, who played Rain, was in a shit ton of TV, and I'm sure you recognize him when you, he's the, you know, the one with the long hair that does the flying sword fighting. He's okay. in so many different roles doing stuff, but I immediately noticed him as Bobby Nguyen, the guy who killed... Christian Slater's brother in Gleaming the Cube. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He's also in The Golden Child, which I meant to 
mentioned earlier, which was an Eddie Murphy movie with almost the same plot that came out in 1986 as well. And they asked John Carpenter to direct that movie. And he was like, no, I'm doing my own movie that's similar. And he had to bust ass to get his movie out six months earlier. Oh, okay. And while people like The Golden Child, which I remember seeing it when I was younger and liking it, this movie usually takes the 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 cake so to speak to people probably because they saw it first but eddie murphy comedy action hero he's the chosen one there's you know a lot of asian mysticism and he's having to fight through all that so they had very similar plots and james pax played lightning i don't want to leave him out just because i did the other two storms (laughs) he did some tv and a few film roles but john carpenter says he believes he was actually a model when he hired him oh okay and oddly enough he's the only one that doesn't speak in the film between the three storms. Hey, man, when you look that good, you don't have to speak. But anyways, the chain scenes <laughs> open fire on the three storms, and their bullets have zero effect. And the three storms then pull out these daggers, and they do this ridiculous flipping maneuver and chunk the daggers, killing three people in unison. And Jack tries to get out of there and run him down, but they either move out of the way or jump over his truck. And John Carpenter says he came up with that ridiculous move and made them do it, and he can't believe they did it. <laughs> it's like he thought it was a really good idea in his head and then he saw it and he's like oh that looks fucking terrible but you know what it's kind of cool and i forgot to mention this a minute ago but primarily lightning but the three storms were the inspiration for raiden in mortal Kombat. the creator said yeah like this yeah, movie fucking had to be <laughs> yeah no no i'm flat out they said it this movie is part of how they came up with the idea for mortal Kombat was from watching this movie and there's about to be another tie in here in a second because after Jack gets past the three storms, a tall Chinese man in like traditional royal garb stands in front of the truck and he won't get out of the way. And Jack runs him over. So he thinks. And Wang lets him know like, oh, shit, that was low pan. And Jack gets out to see what happened. And the man is just standing there behind his truck like nothing happened. And he shoots magic light from his eyes and mouth, temporarily blinding Jack. Wayne grabs Jack and runs off down in the alley and he lets him know that he only appeared to run over Lopan. It was an illusion because he can do that because he's a sorcerer, basically. Right. And he starts to flush Jack's eyes out so that he can see just in time for the Lords of Death to show up. And Jack tells Wayne that he can keep his money. He's going home. Right. (laughs) And the Lords of Death say Wayne's name, his full name. So they know who he is now. And like, oh, fuck. And they have to take off running and abandon Jack's truck because the three storms are murdering the shit out of the Chang Sings in the background next to the truck. <laughs> and Lo Pan was the inspiration for Shang Tsung for Mortal Kombat. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Looks just like him. He's like a warlock with the soul magic. It, it's Shang Tsung. So if it wasn't for this movie, we wouldn't have Mortal Kombat. And if it wasn't for Josh's movie that we're going to cover later, we wouldn't have Metal Gear Solid. That's right. More on that later. But after Jack and Wang get away from Shang Tsung, they dive into a building to hide, right? And they bump into a Chang Sing member who is also hiding in there. And he he tells them to be quiet. And there's like this hand gesture that I'm doing to Josh right now that the Chang Sing do to each other. And Jack wants to know what the fuck was going on because they were winning until the storm showed up. And Wang lets them know that the Lords of Death work for the Wing Kong and that the Wing Kong work for Lo Pan. Right. So like this is all been escalating so we cut to that night at wang's restaurant and we can see that jack's walking around in what i think is a woman's silk robe arguing with his insurance company about his truck on the phone and he does not want to hear act of god he says that multiple times and uncle chu lets jack know that china is here what does that mean 
Huh? China is here. I don't even know what the hell that means. All I know is this Lopan character comes out of thin air in the middle of a goddamn alley while his buddies are flying around on wires cutting everybody to shreds, and he just stands there waiting for me to drive my truck straight through him with light coming out of his mouth. But at this point, Eddie comes in and we find out that he's Wang's best friend and the mater D for the restaurant. And Eddie lets them know he's also a whole lot more, right? And he starts to let them know, hey, look, the Lords of Death stole your truck. They were there for a random girl. Miao Yin got in the way and they took her. Like, he knows everything because apparently Eddie knows fucking everybody in Chinatown. And then Gracie Law randomly shows up and Uncle Chu wants to know what the hell is Gracie Law doing here, right? So apparently everybody <laughs> knows who she is too and he doesn't want her in the fucking restaurant. But Gracie knows where they have Miao Yin, and it's at a place called the White Tiger, which is an illegal sex trade club, right? Because basically the Lords of Death kidnap Chinese girls and they do sex trafficking, right? And unfortunately, that is a thing that really happens. But Gracie says that since Miao Yin has green eyes, she's going to be real expensive to buy because Wang's letting Jack know that he can't give him his money right now because he needs as much money as he can to buy her back. And they come up with this great idea to send Jack into the brothel. I don't want to say brothel because it's not a brothel. It, it is. Some of the girls are there voluntarily, just not all of the girls are there voluntarily. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's right. But they want to send Jack in in his used car suit. I'm pretty sure it's the same <laughs> suit he, he wore in that movie. And they said it's because he looks stupid and they'll believe that he's actually a tourist. Yeah. And he walks in and acts real goofy until they give him a catalog of girls to go through. And he, he says he'd really like to see some color photos because he wants a girl with green eyes. And they let him know that Chinese girls don't come that way. And at this point, they're on to him. And one of the girls goes to check out Miao Yin to make sure she has green eyes. And she was in like a hidden room in the back, right? We cut to the car and we see Gracie waiting with Eddie and Wang. And she sees her friend Margot pull up in another car and she runs over to talk to her. And we find out that she's a journalist and Gracie lets her know that they have their best man on the inside, right? <laughs> and we're going to cut in between Wang getting anxious and wanting to go in while Eddie's calming him down and Jack in a room with a girl. Cause I guess, like you said, I guess that is partially a brothel. It just also has illegal sex trafficking. And he's in there with a girl and he's like trying to ask her like questions like normal because he's now in this awkward situation that he's probably been in before. If you think of his character, I don't know. He just, he strikes that vibe to me. <laughs> oh, but at this point we see more of that green magic and smoke around the building and it starts to rain and the whole building starts to tremble like an earthquake. And the three storms arrive to take me in and Jack tries to punch rain in the face. And of course it has no effect on him. And he basically headbutts Jack temporarily knocking him out and they fly off into the sky, riding lightning bolts into the smoke and poof away with me in. And if you haven't seen this movie, all the effects of this look fucking awesome awesome <laughs> yes and if they remade this movie it would be all cgi and look like shit yeah yeah the animation work and compositing work done in this movie is fucking phenomenal it's fucking ilm i mean <laughs> <laughs> basically right not, not literally but basically yeah it's a guy that helped build ilm basically that's, that's a guy who knew how to make that shit look like it was really lighting up on screen <laughs> we cut to gracie's home office where they're trying to explain who lopan is to jack and we find out that his name's David Lopan. He runs all the street gangs and the Oriental Treasury, right? So there's there's Lopan and David Lopan we're hearing about now. And basically that's his persona, right? Besides being an evil ancient sorcerer. Exactly. And Wang says that his mind and spirit are now as one and that he's going to go into the Wing Kong exchange to get his fiance. 
Well, now that I think about it, yeah, it's called the Wing Kong Exchange, and that's the name of the gang. This should all be obvious to the police, but I oh, guess yeah. he's a sorcerer, and nobody probably gives a fuck. Or they're just paid off. <laughs> they don't want to go to one of the many Chinese hells that we're going to get into here in a minute. Or that. <laughs> but Jack says that Wang's mind and spirit are ass, too, because he's going with them, because he wants to get his truck, and then he delivers the speech. And I'm not going to play the clip. I just want to say it. He looks Gracie Law dead in the eyes, and he says, okay, you people sit tight and hold the fort and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. Like, what the fuck? It's one of my favorite lines in the movie. It's so good. Oh, he thinks he's on such an adventure. He thinks he's the hero. But we cut to Wang and Jack as they arrive at the exchange. You notice that I say Wang first most of the time because he's the the hero here. He's Batman. Jack's Robin. (laughs) But they show up at the exchange acting like telephone repairmen and just bust their way into the back talking, right? Like Wang's yelling shit in Chinese and Jack's like, where's the breaker? (laughs) And they go to the back and there's a door and it says something in Chinese and Jack wants to know what it says. And Wang says, you know, behind this door is the hell of burning oil. And Jack's like, no shit. And he said, no, 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 it just says keep out. But earlier in the movie, Eddie says something about blah, blah, blah. It might be when he's saying like, you don't want to fuck with Lords of Death. They'll send you to the hell of being cut up into a thousand pieces. And Jack's like, what? And he's like, Chinese have a lot of hells. And that's like a running joke to this movie. So that's like our second Chinese hell joke right there. Okay. But anyways, they break in and we cut back to the restaurant where Egg Shin is now there. And we find out he's the local expert on Lopan. And he's doing some sort of divination with Uncle Chu and like reading. I don't know. It's almost like reading bones, but it's not literally what he's doing. And he's explaining that, like, basically the stars are aligning and shit's about to get real. So if the (laughs) opening scene wouldn't have been added, we would originally seen him driving the bus and then now seen him at the restaurant as the Lopan expert. And that would have worked, too. Yeah. I noticed how much I'm cutting back and forth. That's going to happen a lot in this movie. But I really noticed through doing this episode, that is a John Carpenter staple. Oh, yeah. Never noticed that as much until now. And it's mainly because like Halloween, Christine, that's not as much of a thing as it is here. Yeah. But like this, the fog, they live, escape from New York, hell, escape from LA. It gets to this weird part where it's like, okay, here go three storylines and go. (laughs) And it works. He does it great. It's just hard to read it out loud to you and you understand. So sometimes I just do it as I'm going to, I'm not even going to mention when I do it, but sometimes I do a back and forth scene as three different sections. Basically (laughs) it works. I feel like there's a lot of people that hadn't seen this movie, even though it does have a huge cult following, but please watch it. I'm so mad. I think I announced it several months ago, but during COVID, this movie officially went up by Google for free on YouTube where you could watch it in its entirety in HD and it's no longer up there. I checked. Oh, that blows. Cause I was going to tell everybody that I hadn't seen it. And like, there's a bunch of people in my discord from when I used to stream that was asking about the next episode and they all want to see it cause they haven't seen it. So I might do some kind of like watch party thing or something just cause I fucking love this movie. <laughs> anyway, some gushing enough. So we cut back to wing and Jack and they find a hidden elevator and they take it down. Meanwhile, Chu and Egg are discussing Lopan's curse and the demons and magic and whatnot, right? And we find out that basically Lopan is like a ghost at this point without corporeal form, and he wants his form back, right? So he ain't got a body. Exactly. Okay. There we go in Josh terms. (laughs) Back in the elevator. Well, it's kind of an elevator. It stops moving 
and then fills up with salt water, which is not a normal behavior of an elevator. But they managed to pry the elevator door open and swim into this big water tank that the elevator went down to. And it's full of rotting corpses that are hanging by their feet. And it's pretty gruesome and awesome looking. Yeah. And when they come out, Wang says, this is the hell of upside down sinners. <laughs> but he says it's serious. So this wasn't like the boiling oil. This was more like the cut into a thousand pieces hell, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I think they're all legit and like their names literally say what they mean. <laughs> well, I mean, because that's common in like, like if you ever listen to like, like prominent names of things from a foreign language and then you translate it to English, like, wow, that sounds cool. What does that mean? It means the dog who sits on the rock. That's why there's a picture of a dog sitting on a rock. Like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, it's because we have the most complicated language there is. I know everybody makes fun of us. Like we, we just took something that existed like easily for other, other cultures. And it's like, how do we fuck this up? <laughs> the main one that fucks us. And I'm sure this is really hard for immigrants that are trying to learn English. Cause I learned this trying to teach my kids how to read is the amount of words like homonyms that you're trying to explain to a kid how the word means something different, right? Like, yeah, even though it's spelled differently and they get confused because they've only learned the other way, or you have the even more confusing version of where it's spilt identically and means two different things. And that's got to be fuck everybody up. Well, and on top of that, if you look at a, a lot of other foreign languages, cause I did pay some attention back when I was in honors classes, a lot of language is gender based. There is the male based language and yeah. female based language. And uh, that just, you know, the whole pronoun thing. It's like, okay, okay, let's see that go over in French. Let's see that go over in Spanish. <laughs> Anyways, just the, as, as an aside, but yeah, we've really got a mutt bastard fucked up language here <laughs> in America. But you guys will have to tune in next week for more <laughs> etymology with Josh and Jesse. I like it. in the movie. I don't know how we fucking went on that tangent, but it just happened. Oh, it has to every episode. We were at the hell of upside down centers, correct? Yes. <laughs> this is the first episode where I've had to check my spot because of our random tangents. So Rain shows up and he finds Jack and Wang and he takes them to a room to interrogate them by blowing a ball into Jack over and over again. It's kind of odd. And yeah. then he puts them in wheelchairs blindfolded and they roll them to Lopant, who appears as a really, 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 really old man. Like he farts dust. Yes. He farts and becomes dust. <laughs> so we've now basically seen him in three forms. We've seen the height varies from seven, eight, nine, twelve feet tall, Lopan. We also saw homeless Lopan digging through the trash, smiling right before the battle broke out. Now a lot of people notice that because oh, that is shit. basically just the actor dressed like a hermit, right? And he's not in a Lopan costume, but he looks at the camera and smiles. So it's like he's there for shit to start. <laughs> And now we see Mr. David Lopan, who runs the exchange as far as the city's concerned, right? All right. And they go back and forth, but basically Lopan lets Jack know that he was not brought on this earth to think. And he knows that Jack's not there about a truck, but about a girl with green eyes. And he says he's waited 2,000 years for her, and he wants to know about her from Wang. He starts asking about her parents. Were they holy people? Like, what provenance is she from? Because he's just fascinated by her. And Wang won't talk back to him, so he then threatens to send him to the hell of being skinned alive. Guess what happens there? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lopan says that he is a young king and warrior trapped in the body of an old man, and it's his tomb, and he must appease his god to get back his body and have his curse lifted. So we got a little bit of exposition here. This movie does do that oddly a couple times. You got that one, but it's not as weird as Gracie and Margot both have things where they do 
like seven minutes exposition in a minute without taking a breath. Yeah. You know, and it always seems odd, but every time they do it, I'm like, okay, I get the plot now, you know, <laughs> it yeah, worked, you, you know, it's definitely one of those that you could feel on set that an actor's like, why am I asking this? Why are we doing this? Well, because blah, 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 blah. Have we told the audience that, huh? All right, everybody <laughs> back to one. <laughs> I need you to say all that and roll. <laughs> Oh, but after Lopan goes on his villain monologue, he sees Eddie and Gracie on the security cameras and he lets them know that this really pisses him off to no end. And it's really funny the way he says it. And he wheels out in the wheelchair and leaves him there. We cut to the lobby and we can see that they're acting like Margot wants to do a report on the exchange and she wants a tour. And basically Gracie's there like her legal aid, I guess. And Eddie's there to translate, right? Yeah, yeah. They got a little scam going. Yeah, he's the local, right? So they're faking, trying to get brought through there. And the guard's like, no, no, no. And then Thunder shows up. And if I didn't mention this earlier, when Rain took the guys in the wheelchair to Lopan, he was in like a black business suit with a red tie. And Thunder is also in a suit now. So they're not in their like raiding outfits at this point while they're at work at the exchange. (laughs) But basically, Thunder says, I'll give you a tour. And he's real polite and starts taking him around like he's actually giving him a tour. And we cut to Jack and Wang locked in a cell. And Jack manages to rock his wheelchair over to get his knife out of his boot to free both him and Wang so they can figure out what's going on. And there's like skeletons hanging on the wall and they can see a little light under the door. And if I didn't mention Jack Burton's boots earlier, he has these crazy fucking moccasin boots on. They come up to his knees. (laughs) And that was not the costume designer's idea. That was Kurt Russell's idea for his character to wear those. And he had them custom made for himself in a shop in Aspen, Colorado. And on the commentary, he says he just took his son there to get him a pair made. <laughs> Cause his son is younger than obviously now he's, you know, he's in his thirties, but uh, I thought that was kind of neat. Cause they are pretty much a, a Jack Burton trademark, but he keeps a, uh, a big ass knife in there, which comes in handy a couple times in this movie. But we come back to the elevator and thunder's acting like he's giving a tour and he's being legit while lighting a cigar to smoke in the elevator. And we find out that the smoke is basically knockout gas and it knocks the trio out. Thunder's fine. I mean, he's bulletproof and they can't be punched in the face. I'm assuming knockout smoke doesn't work on him. And we go back to the cell and Jack wants to know what's going on. And Wing tells him the legend of Lopan and about how he lost a battle to the great emperor and the emperor cursed him. And Wang lets him know that it's no horse shit. The magic and everything is real, right? Because that's their thing. He'll say no horse shit, Jack. That's what he says yeah. to him throughout the movie. Instead of bullshit, it's, it's just kind of funny. It's like a language barrier thing almost as I guess what they were going for. Yeah. But Jack and Wang hear someone coming and they put their blindfolds back on and act like they're tied to the wheelchair still. And Thunder comes in and hangs Eddie up on the wall on a meat hook, but not quite as bad as in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just his coat. And they try to jump Thunder and he overpowers both of them and knocks him down. And then Jack manages to dive on his back and put the knife up to his throat while Eddie and Wang run out. And they're like, come on, Jack. And he's like, how? He doesn't know how to get off of Thunder's back without getting his ass kicked. And then Thunder starts to suck in air and swell up and get bigger and bigger. And it eventually slings Jack off and he lands in a wheelchair and the wheelchair is on an incline and he starts to roll back real fast and he knocks out a couple of wing kong on the way down that dive out with guns as he rams into him and eddie and wang slam the door shut on thunder and lock him in there and then we can see dick warlock i mean jack almost (laughs) flip back into a well that's at the end of the ramp he slams into it and flips back and he grabs the wheels and locks some of his muscles and he slowly pulls himself up 
And it was Dick Warlock who did the stunt for him. And Dick Warlock was Kurt Russell's only stunt man for 20 something years, even back in the Disney days. Yep. Going all the way back to the sixties. And, uh, there's a whole lot of Dick Warlock that we've never even brought up (laughs) in this series that I didn't realize until digging into that. But I got a little bit more on that in, uh, in the next movie. Cause he was the shape in Halloween too. And he did a lot of stunt work for John Carpenter and John Carpenter's crew. Like he was even the uh, robot assassin guy in Season of the Witch, right? But yep. he did so much more than that. But what I I never knew that he was Kurt Russell's stuntman also, but like only, Kurt Russell's only stuntman. Like he's known him forever. I just thought that was really neat, like that it kind of came back full circle. And that yeah. would mean that Kurt knew Dick Warlock before he knew John. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just funny. I noticed digging into it, he's uncredited for a lot of stuff, but he's yeah, ever ever since the sixties. I think the the first flick that uh that Kurt Russell credited him to be in his double was the computer that wore tennis shoes. <laughs> like, yeah, because Kurt yeah. Russell is a big Disney actor and he used John Carpenter to help break that image. There we go. We would have never gotten to Tango and Cash. <laughs> exactly. Tequila Sunrise. Stargate. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. To a, to a lesser degree. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Eddie and Wang grab the guns from the Wing Kong that Jack knocked the fuck out. And if I accidentally call them Wang Kong in here anywhere, I'm sorry. Because we have Wang and we have the Wing Kong. So I, sometimes I start talking too fast. Dude, the whole movie, I thought they were calling Egg 8chan, all right? <laughs> oh, shit. No, he's Egg Shin. <laughs> I'm like, did he just call him 8chan? There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, shit. So, like I said, Eddie and Wang pick up some guns. They divvy the guns up. Jack does a little swapperoo with them because he wants the Uzi real bad. And Eddie lets them know that Uncle Chu and Egg are waiting outside in the bus. And they head off to find the girls, right? So they got a getaway driver. That's what Eddie wanted to let them know. We see Lopan get angry on the phone and he slams it and he starts to glow. And this was a... Uh, fake head they made, but it looked just like him in the prosthetics, which he hated those prosthetics, by the way. It was supposed to be very uncomfortable and took hours to do. But it starts to glow, looks pretty cool, and then the light gets really bright, and then it cuts to, you know, nine foot tall or whatever the fuck he's supposed to be. (laughs) King Lopan, basically, as he floats through all the walls because he's non-corporeal. you got to remember that. Until he goes to a room where Miao Yan is suspended in the air asleep, and he tells her that he needs her so that he can be flesh soon, right? We cut back to our trio as they're jumped by some Wing Kong, and Wang has to whoop all of their asses, including flipping through the air to dodge automatic gunfire, right? Because Wang is a fucking badass in this movie. And <laughs> Jack finally figures out the safety on the Uzi and shoots the last guy <laughs> beside Wang after Eddie's whooped everybody else's ass. And he looks shocked as he does it. And Eddie asks him if it's the first time he ever plugged someone. And he's like, uh, of course not. And you can tell he's full of shit. <laughs> like, that's possibly the first time he ever shot a firearm, let alone killed somebody. Those are rookies' eyes. But Eddie, the Mater D, and a whole lot more, seems to have no concerns about shooting somebody. That's how they do it in Chinatown. Eddie was on the Lords of Death once, and they let him leave because he was that much of a badass. That's my head cannon. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's not demonstrated in the movie whatsoever. God, this is going to take forever. I got to stop going on random fucking tangents here. And hey, we're uh, almost halfway through the Google Doc. <laughs> shit. My shit's only two pages. <laughs> oh, God. I hope you didn't butcher the movie. 
There's not a lot that happens in that movie, sir. Oh, come on. <laughs> Let's finish the first one before you try to shit on the second one. <laughs> we can see the prison cells where all the girls are being kept. We can see Wang hop out onto a bridge with a shotgun up to Eddie's head, yelling a bunch of shit in Chinese and acting like he took one of their own hostage as Dick Warlock sneaks under the bridge, doing his arms side by side down a pipe to go around because Kurt pointed out that was definitely not him that did that scene. And <laughs> Wang threatens to send them all to the hell of the Holy Dragon or some shit like that if they don't fucking open the gates and they don't fall for it. They know that Eddie doesn't work there. And they pull out some bows and they do like a smoke distraction and they start to bow staff fight Eddie and Wang. Eddie's holding his own. Wang's whooping some ass yet again. Jack frees Gracie and Margo and the rest of the other girls that were, you know, taken as slaves or whatever. And they have everybody except for Miao Yin now, right? But they got to go. And we see Eddie and Wang finish off the guards. And then Thunder comes in with the Wing Kong to run after him. And they all make it to this pool of water in the middle of the room and jump into it and swim out to the sewers. And Gracie stops at like a spot where you can come up for air. And she stops every person as they come by. She's like, you know, where is Margo? And they're like, behind me. Like, that's what Wang says. <laughs> and then when Margo comes, like, where's Eddie? Behind me. And then it's, where's Jack? And then Jack's not popping up. And she's getting real upset, right? And then Jack pops up out of nowhere and he kisses her. And while Jack is flirting with Gracie, Wang figures out where they are and how to get out. Because remember, he's the fucking hero. So he's taking care of shit right now. <laughs> and he then sends his sidekick to investigate. He literally is like, Jack, go check it out. Right. And Jack's like, yeah. And he gets up the ladder and he crawls <laughs> up to the warehouse. Right. And he discovers that Wang was correct. The room above them was the room they went into that had the sliding door that said keep out on it, right? So, like, Wang had kept track of all that shit. And he gets everybody else to come up, and they run up to the sliding door, but they're on the other side of it now, right? And when they run up, Jack turns around, and Sirius is a heart attack, just starts giving a hero speech. He's like, from here on out, it's all pretty normal with offices and whatnot. And I'm going to count to three and then I'm going to open the door. And we're going to make a run for it. And everyone's like just looking at him fascinated. And, and Wang and Eddie are trying to translate it in Chinese to the girls. And everybody's like, yeah, this is a good plan. And then he opens the door and it's just a wall of Wing Kong with weapons waiting for him. She may be trapped. On the commentary, Jack and Kurt lost it a couple of times. That that was one of them right there. When he like, is this a serious plan? And opens the door and it's a trap, you know? Oh, nice. But Jack slams the door and he tells them to all go run and hide because the Wing Kong only saw him and everyone runs off except for Wang. And the door opens and Jack starts to plug all the Wing Kong as they run through the door until he runs out of ammo. And Wang then has to dive in and Kung Fu whoop the rest of their asses. And there's way more left than what Jack had shot, right? And he's taken out several of them over and over again as Jack's trying to fish his knife out of his boot. And he finally gets his knife out of his boot and accidentally lets it slip out of his hand and fly off into the warehouse. So he goes off running for the knife. And <laughs> Wang takes out the rest of the guys. And after he slams the last guy on the ground, Jack jumps out with a battle cry screaming with his knife in his hand. There's nobody left to take out. Jack effectively missed the fight. That's going to happen a couple of times. Yeah, it is. And this is when the studio started getting confused about the purpose of this movie and Kurt Russell being in it. The shit like that. He's there to put on the poster. Oh, we're not going to print any of those. <laughs> I mean, he was there for comedic relief in this Kung Fu film is what it was, really. Yeah. He's the uh, Chris Tucker. 
to Jackie yeah. Chan in this movie, basically. But they make it to the offices and they can see Egg and Chew out the window waiting at the bus, right? Because they haven't ran past the guards yet. And Jack and Wang walk out like they're still the telephone repair guys until Jack pulls up a gun and says, reach for the sky. And everyone runs out behind him, right? Except for Gracie, who stayed to look at some artwork that had weird moving eyes until the wall opened up and a hairy monster arm grabbed her and yanked her in the wall, right? Wang and crew do not realize that they left Gracie behind until it's too late and they're on the bus and driving her way. And they realize that she is locked inside with Miao Yan as well. So they got two people they're going to have to go back and rescue. And we then cut to the sewers and see the hairy monster carrying Gracie until she faints on its shoulder, right? And then he takes her and she's chained in a room as rain and thunder come in with Lopan. And he's now excited to have two girls with green eyes. And Lopan likes the fire she has in her, he says. And she wants to see David Lopan and does not realize the old man she's speaking to is Lopan because he's so old. And I want to point out that neither Kim Cattrall or the actress playing Miao Yin actually had green eyes. They both had to wear <laughs> old school, heavy, painful contacts oh, to nice. do this movie. And it was bad enough on Kim Cattrall. She had a bad enough reaction that her eyes would weep for 15 minutes when they put them in. So they would have to put them in really quick, 15 minutes before the take, actually a little bit more time, and then do her makeup after her eyes were done swelling and crying. Oh, damn. And in HD versions of the movie, like the one you have, it's obvious that she has contacts in, but you couldn't tell in the low clarity back in the day. Yeah. But we cut back to Wang and Jack as they're prepping for battle at Wang's restaurant and Egg shows up with the Chang Sings and Jack wants to know if any of them savvy English. And one of them in a very California surfer voice says, who is this guy? Egg? <laughs> and Jack's like, okay, I get it. I get it. And he asks if Egg is coming and Egg lets him know that it is his destiny to fight Lopan and he's waited a long time for this. And they head off to get ready with Egg and crew. We cut to Lopan's base and we see Thunder throw Gracie in the room with floating Yao Yan. And then the sorcerer version of Lopan comes in the room and he tells her that he's going to marry both of them because they have green eyes. And then he does that crazy light thing out of his eyes and mouth. And then we fade away, right? And we cut to Egg Shin's base of operations, which is Station 32 from Ghostbusters. <laughs> I didn't know if you caught that. Yes. <laughs> And it's been used in all sorts of movies, but it's most famous for being the Ghostbuster station. But Egg comes out in his battle attire because he's like, he goes in the back and he like instantly comes out like Clark Kent turning into Superman in this like battle suit with like Wookiee fur on it and shit. I'm assuming he killed whatever that hairy monster is, one of them before, like it's sister or something. <laughs> he's like wearing the skin over his like gi or whatever. Oh, gi's Japanese, but whatever his suit is, right? But he wants to show them that he has a hidden tunnel behind a false wall to go down in the sewers in his base. And Wang points out that he's like one of the richest men in Chinatown, even though Jack thinks it all looks like junk, but it's like ancient relics and shit that he has that are priceless to the Chinese, right? Yeah, yeah, like uh, like human horn and shit like that. <laughs> shit. <laughs> and uh, Jack's a little scared to go down there, so then Wang has to give his sidekick a pep talk, and then Jack's willing to go down into the sewers, right? We cut to Lopan's throne room, and we can see him sitting there with his two brides-to-be beside him as the three storms perform some sort of ritual with katas, right? And the girls stand there in a trance as the ritual's performed until they end up floating up to the ceiling while holding onto these magic swords and touching a light, and these demon eyes light up on it. And Lopan says that both of them have survived the burning blade and tamed the savage heart, so he shall marry both women. And earlier he had a conversation with Jack, because Jack was making fun of him, and he must be bad at the ladies if he hasn't found a girl with green eyes in 2,000 years. And he says... <laughs> 
you obviously know how hard it is to keep a woman like talking shit to Jack. And then he's found many women with green eyes, but it didn't work out. And I guess it's because they died during this test. But he now has two women that survived the test. So I choose both. He's choosing both. He's, he's going Mormon on this bitch. <laughs> we then cut back to our heroes who are still in underground Chinatown. But now, instead of walking through sewers, they're walking through caves. And there's black water, which Egg says is the black blood of the earth, which Jack wants to know if that means oil. And he says, no, I mean, it's the black blood of the earth. <laughs> and Egg explains to Jack that there are many ancient evil things that he has no comprehension of out there in the world, right? And as they journey further into the tunnels, this badass-looking monster randomly busts out of the wall just, just to grab a Chang Sing and eat him and, and pull him back into the wall. And the monster looked awesome for just being here for a quick second. But what <laughs> happens is Egg reaches into this bag, and he pulls out this crystal and chunks it, and it does this magic smoke thing and basically banishes the monster away. And Egg says, you will come out no more. What? Huh? What will come out no more? We then cut back to the brides-to-be, and Gracie is semi-conscious and trying to get Miao Yen's attention, and then lightning comes in the room, and she closes her eyes to act like she's still in the trance, and he does this lightning thing with his hands, and then both of their eyes roll back white in their in their head, right? Like, they have these weird frosted white eyes now. And I guess I didn't mention it, but they're in these, like, very elaborate Chinese, like, red gowns with hats and a shit ton of makeup on, right? Yeah. Very heavy red lipstick, which is going to come into play in a minute. We then cut back to our motley crew of the tunnels as they breach into Lopan's domain into some like emergency food storage room from the sewers or the tunnels. And Egg says he has to give them some more bad news. He lets them know that a long time ago, the emperor cursed Lopan to make him like a dream. And he does not just have to marry the woman to break the curse, but he also has to sacrifice them afterwards to appease his God to get his corporeal form back, right? And that's how the ritual's completed. And Wang and Jack knew nothing of this part before. They thought it was just, you know, they'd get an annulment and call it a day, right? <laughs> and Jack wants Egg to stop talking Chinese history and to get on with it. And Egg Shin says that they're preparing for the final battle and that only a dream can kill a dream. And he's waving this flask around as he says it, right? <laughs> and then they sneak further into the compound and Jack asks if there's a magic potion in that flask and Egg confirms that it is. And Jack unsurprisingly says, I thought so. Let's go. Right? Like he's down with it now. Totally. And then they're approached by what appears to be a beholder from Dungeons and Dragons. And it's this monstrous head with these tentacles with eyeballs in the end. He's got eyeballs on his tongue and fucking eyes everywhere. It's a puppet. It looks fucking awesome. The only thing odd about it is it's always locked in the center of the frame, and that's because it had its own matte painting attached to the back of it. <laughs> Which may or may not have been made by James Cameron. I don't know. Before James Cameron was directing, he was doing matte paintings for John Carpenter. So More on that later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, what I do want to say is this thing looks like it wandered off the set of fucking Labyrinth. <laughs> it looks badass, and honestly, I think it looks better than a lot of the Labyrinth puppets. I agree. But it, it feels like it's out of that universe, not this universe. Yeah. Anyways, it looks really fucking cool. Jack's basically crying like a baby in the background, like, oh, my God, what is that? And they explain that Lopan can see through the eyes of this thing, and he can speak through it. And we cut to Lopan telling the storms what he sees, and they look scared shitless when he says the Egg Shin is there. Like, the storms look at each other like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and Lopan starts to talk shit through the monster until Jack shoots it in the head, shooing it away. And he's like, yeah, you got to try. But obviously it didn't hurt the thing, right? 
Our heroes discover that they can easily walk to the base now, even though Lopanos are there, and it's because literally everyone is at the wedding ceremony, and Lopan is too busy to give a shit that they're there trying to stop him. He just doesn't <laughs> think they have a chance. But they stop in a bar room, and Shin starts to prepare some cocktails, and as all this is going on, Wang discovers what might be a false wall, because he's the one always solving the problems here, and Jack comes over to check on it and starts to knock on stuff with his knife. Hollow? Hollow? Fuck it. <laughs> I love that part. I don't know what it is about it. It's just random, the back and forth. But he slashes through the false wall with his knife, and they find a hidden elevator that Jack says, oh, I bet this only goes down, because that was explained to him earlier. <laughs> and Egg says that it's time for them to all take their medicine. So they all run up to the bar and grab their cups, and Jack says that he wants to know exactly what this does again. And Egg responds with huge buzz. And then he gulps it down <laughs> and he's like, this is good. And he lets Jack know that it'll let him do things that others cannot do. And it'll let him see things that others cannot see. And Jack says, that's great. What else could a guy want? And Egg says, a six demon bag. Terrific. A six demon bag. Sensational. What's in it, Egg? Wind, fire, all that kind of thing. I love that joke because six demon bags pop up and things randomly. It's an item in World of Warcraft, for example, and it's always coming back to this movie. But that is what Egg's been pulling the crystals out is the six demon bag. Oh, okay. And at this point, we're going to dive into the third act. But I guess since this is more of a kung fu movie and not a horror movie, I'm going to say the final battle. Hey. But our group of heroes board the elevator and they all appear buzzed as hell at this point and jack says he feels pretty good and he's not even scared at all he even feels kind of invincible and everyone's smiling and laughing and wang says he's got a very positive attitude about all of this and egg basically is looking around like man these guys can't handle their shit because <laughs> all of the Chang sings are smiling they're doing a little fucking hand gesture at each other yeah. And Kurt Russell, I mean, granted, this was years ago. It was 15 years after the movie came out. So it's like roughly 2001, right? He, he said that not a day goes by that he doesn't get in an elevator with people and they look at him and say that they feel pretty good. They're not scared at all. Kind of invincible. Like people always say that shit to him when they get in the elevator with him. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you were the bomb and phantoms joke for him, right? <laughs> But during all of this, we were cutting back and forth to the wedding ceremony, and the wedding started by now. There's a bunch of shit going on. It's a cool-looking room with a bunch of demon statues with crazy green lights around them and shit, and an escalator that Lopan was afraid to go down because he thought his robe was going to get sucked in there and he was going to die because they had him on, like, six-inch shoes because he's supposed to be, okay. like, really tall, you know, and he couldn't see shit. But it's a cool-looking room, and they were cutting to it back and forth with a bunch of useless fucking exposition. But our heroes have now entered the room, and Lopan and the Storms and shit don't notice they're in the room yet. And Jack wants to just immediately shoot Lopan and get it over with, and Egg tells him he can't shoot him yet because Lopan needs to be flesh first. He has to finish the wedding. And Lopan gets to the end of the ceremony, and he takes out this long needle, and he pokes the actress with, with it, right? And like I said, it's a retractable needle, but if you notice, she stands there like she's in a trance, and then she does like a death wince randomly. And it's because uh -huh. the actor got carried away and stabbed the shit out of her in the arm with the knife, and she just tried to soldier through it. God, I miss the 80s. <laughs> now, I mean, it was retractable, so it was basically like putting like a, a blunt object pushing it, right? Which yeah. would still hurt, but it, she didn't get stabbed at least. But after he stabs her with the needle, he reaches under his robes and I guess he scratches himself and he pulls out and he's got blood on his hands, right? So he's like laughing because it's starting to work. And the eye monster rolls up on our heroes and they kill him with a sword stab real quick, which Lopan can tell. And he like 
screams in pain, and then he sicks all of the Wing Kongs on the group of heroes, right? And they all give out a battle cry, including Jack, who doesn't last, and then he shoots his gun up in the air to the ceiling, knocks a bunch of rocks loose that fall on his head, rendering him unconscious, and basically putting him out of this fight now, just like when he lost the knife earlier. Oh, it's such an Indiana Jones moment. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> Gracie gets out of her uh, trance state, and she's trying to get free, and we can see the Chang Sings whooping the Wing Kong's ass all over the place. <laughs> There's and- wings and dongs everywhere. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> and Egg is blowing them up, throwing magic crystals from a six demon bag. And when he chunks one, there's a big fucking explosion and bodies go flying everywhere. And Lopan attempts to complete the ritual with Miao Yin because I guess Gracie got away. I, maybe he's trying to stab her other fucking arm. I don't know. I mean, initially only needed one bride. He just happened to have two in case shit went awry this time. Well, now you can keep one and sacrifice the other. Man's yeah, got a plan. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And we can see Wang is like running up walls and there's like an archway where he runs up the ceiling and all the way back around, whooping everybody's ass. And then he gets in this lengthy sword fight with Rain that ends up being an aerial battle with them flying through the air, fighting each other until he ends up ramming the sword into Rain and killing him, right? And they're basically, they weren't doing wire foo because they, they bring up in the commentary how they both had just saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Because it must have just came out. And he's like, yeah, okay. we didn't have wires. We're using trampolines and shit and catching them in the air fighting. And Dennis Dunn, who everyone agrees was perfect for this film, had no martial arts training before this movie. He learned oh, for this movie. And John Carpenter said that he was regularly on set in between takes practicing with a wooden sword because he wanted the, the sword fight scene to look cool. Like he was afraid he was going to fuck it up, basically. Which he did not. I mean, Wang always has this air of confidence around him anytime he's fighting. And he just took out one of the three fucking storms, which apparently nobody can do, right? Yeah. During this battle between Wang and Rain, Jack finally wakes up and he tries to shoot Lopan, but he's immediately stopped by Thunder, who yanks the gun out of his hand and fucking punches it into dust because Thunder's strong as fuck. And Egg saves Jack by chunking one of those crystals out of the six demon bag at Thunder, and it explodes and throws him up onto a balcony, and his fate is unclear at this point. And then Jack tries to get the knife out of his boot so that he can try to jump back into the battle a third time, only to be attacked by one of these giant demon statue guard things that were in there. And he gets tackled by it and barely gets the knife out of his boot as it lands on him, and he stabs the thing in the heart, killing it, but it's so heavy he can't get it off of himself to get up and fight. So Jack is essentially out of the entire final battle at this point. Yeah. Egg tries to shoot this missile-like object out of like a crossbow or something. It's like a crystal on a crossbow or something at Lopan. And Lopan uses magic basically to deflect it. And then he starts to bitch about shitty peasant magic. And I thought this was interesting because not at this part in the movie, but in another part, John Carpenter is talking about the origins of Kung Fu and about how the emperors and the kings were trying to take over the peasants and they would you know, come in and whoop their ass with weapons and all the peasants had were farm implements and the monks came up with Kung Fu so they could defend themselves and they would fight with like rakes and sticks and shit. And that's why even the three storms, that's when he said it, when the three storms pulled their weapons out in the alley at the beginning of the movie, they're all farming implements like hoes and rakes and shit. Yeah. And okay. I, I kind of think that's what they're going into because they never say it, but I'm pretty sure Egg is as old as Lopan. I could see that. Because he, he keeps talking about his destiny. There's another scene coming up. But the way he says it's like filthy peasant magic. It's like he was one of the peasants down at the bottom of the hill when he was king that he was trying to fucking, you know, enslave, right? How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) 
But Egg and Lopan then shoot these beams of light out of their hands and basically have a video game fight with these avatars in the air, and they're controlling them with their thumbs in the air. It's kind of cool looking. Pretty much. Lopan wins, and he says, Egg, you never could beat me at this. So that lets you know they've done this before. Yeah. And then Thunder tries to escort Lopan and Meow Yin out, because we can see he's not dead, so he can take a hit from that six-demon bag that Egg's been killing people with constantly. And lightning comes in at this point to hold off our heroes, and he starts shooting lightning at Egg, and Egg pulls a fan out, and it's like a full fan. He deflects the lightning right back into lightning's face, knocking him down for a minute, and then he flies away. And Wang runs up the escalator or whatever to get his fiance after Lopan, right? And, and Lightning was trying to nuke it with electricity or lightning or whatever so that it would collapse and they couldn't go through. But Wang got through it in time. Egg then takes one of the things out of his bags or actually takes a handful of the things out of his bags and he starts blowing up all the statues in the room. So I guess they're supposed to be like idols to Lopan's god or demon or whatever. And maybe mm-hmm. it renders him slightly powerless or something, right? So he makes sure he blows all of them up before they leave the room. It looks really cool. John said it was one of the last things they shot because they literally destroyed the set to do it. But Gracie and Jack escape through um, an elevator door after getting attacked by the hairy monster. And I think Gracie just kicks him in the nuts or something, right? Wolfman's got nards. They get in the elevator. And Jack says, don't worry. I can take out Lopan. I got my knife. And Grace is like, what are you going to do with a knife against a guy that's 12 feet tall? And Jack says he's seven. And not to worry about it because I took something. And I can see things that others can't see and do things that others can't do. So they're basically on ecstasy, I think, at this point. Oh, either that or crystal meth. That's a fucking Bruce Campbell line right there. I think we've said that before. That like Kurt Russell is probably like one of the few people that could pull off some fucking ash scenes, right? Yeah, <laughs> and oh. vice versa, really. Yeah, but definitely. Right after he says the, I can see things that others can't see. He wants to know why she's dressed like that, and she's like, "Oh, it's because I was getting married." And then they share a big old kiss right here, right? And from this point on, Jack has bright red lipstick all over his lips from the making out. And (laughs) when they were filming the movie, it really rubbed off of Kim because she had so much lipstick onto his face. And they were like, oh, we got to rub that off. And Kurt told John that he thought it'd be kind of funny if Jack fought the rest of the movie with the lipstick on. And John's like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's do it. They thought it was great. The studio did not. That kept going in the (laughs) list of shit where they were like, I don't understand what's happening in this movie right now. But Jack and Gracie sneak out of the elevator as Thunder's assuring his master that things are fine because he's flesh now. And all he has to do is kill this stupid girl, right? And then Jack interrupts him to say, do you know what Jack Burton always says at a time like this? And they're like, who? And he goes, me, Jack Burton. I say, what the hell? And at this point, our hero, Wang, starts flipping in the room, ready to take on Thunder by himself because he's now killed Rain, right? He's got to take out the rest of the storms. And Wang engages in a battle with Thunder, and we can see him, like, doing these crazy flips because it's it's just an archway behind Jack, and you'll occasionally see him, like, flipping and somersaulting down as Thunder's chasing him and just fucking destroying everything in the room because he's strong as shit. And Jack pulls his knife out, and he chunks it at Lopan's head because Lopan's holding me all in. And Lopan just kind of leans and the knife flies by and misses him, right? And Jack's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, fuck. And Gracie's like, damn it, I knew you couldn't kill his ass with a knife. You're an idiot. And Lopan picks the knife up 
and he says, nice knife. Goodbye, Mr. Burton. And he chunks it at Jack, who fucking randomly catches the knife out of the air and chunks it right back in the low pants fucking forehead, killing him, right? <laughs> and he looks at Grace and he says, it's all in the reflexes. So he's gotten to use that line a few times in this movie. Act like a badass. It's like the one time he got to fight, right? Without fucking himself up. Yeah. And we can see that Wang is still continuing to have the battle of his life in the room next door as it's getting wrecked. And then he runs back into the room of Jack and Gracie, right as Gracie's wiping the lipstick off of Jack's face. And Thunder comes in and sees his dead master on the ground. And he starts to lose his shit. And he starts to suck in air. And he starts to get bigger and pull his sword off his belt. But then he keeps getting bigger and bigger. And the special effects are awesome looking as far as it's real looking like the thing. But it's also like a Looney Tunes cartoon at the same time. It's it's like a fucking... uh Monty Python. (laughs) (laughs) Like it looks real, but he blows up like a cabbage patch doll, basically, right? And then he fucking explodes like cabbage everywhere. So I guess he was trying to make himself big to whoop their ass, and he was so upset he sucked into my chair and killed himself. I I guess is what happened. (laughs) Who knows? Looks badass though. Yes. So Jack and Wang and the two girls make a run for it, but they're stopped by Raiden. Uh, I mean lightning. As they have to exit the hallway, right? And they find that there's a hole in the ceiling that they got to go through. So they start chunking the girls up, right? Or maybe Wang went up first and then Jack sort of handing the girls. But lightning starts to shoot lightning across the concrete or rock tiles or whatever. And it's all melting in like molten lava, basically, right? And John Carpenter said he was scared shitless for the actor because he has this giant straw hat on and everything's on fire around him. And he's like, oh, God, I hope the fucking hat doesn't catch on fire. <laughs> <laughs> but our whole team makes it through the first hole, dodging the lightning up to the hallway, and they can't figure out how to get to the next hole to get up to the next floor until they see that Egg Shin's already up there, and he saves them by shooting a grappling hook down from the floor above with this crossbow, and then they can hold it, and it's got like a winch in it, right? And it'll, it'll pull you up one at a time. They send the girls up first, and then Jack, and then lightning comes up the hole towards Wang, because Wang's killed two of the storms already, right? And he's about to zap Wang because Wang doesn't have a lot of room. And then Egg just drops a giant fucking statue on Lightning's head, killing him. Well, I guess you kill him. It'd be off camera. But it smacks him in the head and knocks him down. The lightning stops coming out. (laughs) And then Wang makes it up the hole. And they run back into the storeroom from the beginning of the movie with the keep out door. And Jack finds his truck in the room. Wang and Egg and the girls run for the truck as Jack tries to hold the door shut because the actual, like, in-uniform guards are starting to come with their guns, right? Yeah. And Jack lets go of the door and takes off running down the wall to get to his truck as the guards open fire on him. And if you pay attention, and you don't even have to pay close attention, it's really obvious. There is a giant squib that's way larger than the other ones that blows up right next to Kurt Russell's fucking head. And it went <laughs> off early because they were supposed to be shooting behind him. And John Carpenter got fucking pissed because it could have killed Kurt Russell so close to his head. And Kurt just kept running, right? Like he was a trooper right past it. And. He says it's the only time he's ever seen John Carpenter like noticeably pissed off or visibly pissed off on set. But he was just like fucking mad. Like who blew it up early? What the fuck happened? And they didn't want to reshoot it. Right. So they kept it in the movie. But watch that (laughs) scene again, man. It fucking about pops his fucking head off. Surprised his hair didn't pull a, you know, Michael Jackson in a Pepsi commercial with all that product he had in it. All right. (laughs) But our team escapes and we cut to a celebration party at Wang's restaurant and everyone's here. 
And Egg gets up to leave, and Jack asks him where he's going, and he says his work here is done, Lopan is dead, and the evil spell has been lifted, and now it's time for an overdue long vacation. And Wayne gives Jack a nothing or triple check as Jack's getting ready to leave, and he says, it's triple because you earned it. And Jack's like, yeah, I did. And he grabs his saddlebags <laughs> to head off, and Jack asks Gracie if she wants to come with them, and she says, I don't know, maybe if you got one of those little beds, cozy enough for two in the back. We could travel the roads together, something like that. And he's like, oh, that sounds great. But uh, sooner or later, I rub everyone the wrong way. So I'm just going to leave, right? And that was another thing the studio didn't get. They're like, why isn't he like hooking up with the chick? And they're like, no, it's just, <laughs> he's Jack. He does it, man. But Borgo asks if he's even going to kiss her goodbye. And he looks up and he says, no. And he just walks up the door on his way. And, and Gracie's smiling like she gets it. And I took that as this isn't goodbye. Yeah. Because right, Wayne's definitely. like one of his best friends and he delivers the pigs there on the Pork Chop Express, right? And Wayne comes to say goodbye to his friend as he's walking out the door. And Jack says that they really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't they? And Wayne's like, no horse shit, Jack. <laughs> we then cut to Jack driving his truck in a rainstorm at night with another awesome monologue. He says, just remember what old Jack Burton does when the earth quakes and the poison arrows fall from the sky and the pillars of heaven shake. Yeah, Jack Burton just looks that big old storm right square in the eye and he says, give me your best shot, pal. I can take it. So it's already the story's already spinning. Jack took out the three storms, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> He's a his own fucking mind. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's what is great about his character in this movie, in this movie in general. And. As this is happening, the camera does, you know, a good old John Carpenter pan towards the back of the truck. And he doesn't have the trailer on. It's just the truck proper, right? And we can see that the giant hairy monster is hitched a ride on the back of the truck. Credits. But not just any credits. We now have the Big Trouble in Little China theme song, which is performed by John Carpenter, Nick Castle, who played The Shape, and Tommy Wallace, all playing the instruments and singing because they had their band called the Coupe de Vils, right? And that was the joke in the fog. They said up next, the Coupe de Vils. And I don't care if you've seen the fucking movie or not, go to YouTube and type in Big Trouble in Little China theme song and watch the most 80s video you've ever seen. John Carpenter doesn't even sound like himself singing. He was trying to do an Elvis voice. It's great. It's 80s as fuck and it's great. Oh, yeah, it is so 80s fucking straight up cringe. It's great. <laughs> and it uses every 80s trope that they did in music videos. My friend Lance wanted to point out like back to back. Like, just no shame. It, it really does. Oh, it's so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, the studio did not get this movie. They didn't get Kurt being goofy and not really being the hero and not even being in the main fights. And they didn't get why he didn't get the girl. He didn't even kiss her at the end. And the box office didn't get it either. <laughs> however after word of mouth this movie became a cult classic and kurt says it's one of the main films brought up to him and i've seen this movie more times than i've seen a lot of horror movies that i've seen this might i might have seen this more than halloween it's hard to tell because i watch halloween at least annually on halloween but i watched this one a couple times a year i think it was just a month or two i was talking about watching it with Aiden, my seven-year-old yeah yeah i watched this one with my dad as a kid and i wore the vhs tape out like i watched it all the time and I immediately got it on DVD when I moved out because I was like, fuck, I don't have the VHS tape anymore. And we didn't have Netflix back then. Right. And, and I watched <laughs> that shit. And I don't know. I, I fucking love this movie. I quote it all the fucking time. And apparently you didn't even know I was quoting it half the time because you had never no. seen it. I don't know how I never played it for you. But it is one of the f most fun movies in the world to me. And I will never get tired of this movie. 
And it will be funny to me until the day I die. This is one of those movies that if I'm like on my deathbed and only got a few days to live and I'm going to go through some movies with, you know, watching my kids or something, got to put in big trouble in little China, go watch it one more time. You know, I, I fucking <laughs> love it. So what did you think after finally getting to see it? I, in, in a rare, in a rare turn for Josh, I really saw, fuck, I should have seen this when I was like 12 or 13 because I didn't. And I say this all the time. I remember shit in, in pictures. I remember on the quote unquote Jesus tapes. I remember reading this written on it. So we had it at some point. I don't know if it was recorded over or not, but I never watched it. And it's funny. It's just, it's a friggin' wacky martial arts dude guy film. There's, there's no deep message or meaning right. in it. It's just a fun ride. Like I said before, the, the Blu-ray transfer looks beautiful. I can't knock it. It's goofy as shit. Like if you don't right. understand what you're getting into and try to be like, oh, well, this is illogical. Like oh, it's not going to work for you. So you would think it wouldn't work for me, but there's so much charm to it. I can really see, damn, had I seen this when I was younger, I would have this on a pedestal. Right. And, you know, to me, I always loved Kung Fu movies. You didn't necessarily dislike them. You just didn't watch them as much as I did, right? And then I was always real big into fantasy stuff. And, and this movie had all of those elements while being a John Carpenter movie. And and it made it a lot of fun. And I just, I don't know. I wish it had more acclaim than it did because this is basically what knocked John Carpenter out of making mainstream movies from this point on. Was this movie bombing? I don't know. It's, it's just a lot of fucking fun. And uh, I don't ever want to see it remade. I really don't. Oh, no. It'd, it'd be a clusterfuck. They'd have to fucking pull a miracle off to impress me. Because it's just such a well-done movie. Even if you don't like fucking martial arts movies, you, you can watch the movie, I feel like. I know people that hate kung fu movies, and they like this movie. Because it's got yeah, be everything, I mean, right? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's it's all in there, shaken up and stirred around. You know, it's another one where you could really fucking tell for the guy who never got to make the fucking Western that he wanted to make. There's Western elements just in everything fucking Carpenter did. But think about it. They handed him a Western to do, and he turned it into a modern movie. Yeah, he didn't I do know. the adaptation himself, but he picked a buddy to do it for him because he wanted it to be a moderate adaptation. Like, what yeah. the fuck? It's the weirdest shit, man. <laughs> and when you hear him and Kurt say, like, oh, we had a good time. We did exactly what we wanted. You know, we wanted to make Jack this big fucking goofball. And you're watching this adventure from the sidekick's eyes while the hero's in the background. And they nailed it. They really nailed it. And you could arguably say that fucking Wang is the star of the movie, too, really. They just didn't put him on the poster. They got Kurt Russell in there. Yeah. And like you said, you're seeing it from his point of view, not the look at me. I'm the flashy star to the audience point of right. view. It's no, you're literally riding through the story with fucking Kurt Russell. <laughs> and let's just be honest. Only John Carpenter could pull this fucking movie off. Oh, dude, I can't come up with anyone. I, I can't even. I don't know how John Carpenter pulled it off. <laughs> Honestly, James yeah. Gunn could probably do Yeah. That's a strong maybe right there. <laughs> if you think of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and shit like that, or even Slither with him directing Nathan Fillion, right? Like, he could do this. Yeah, He's yeah. already worked with Kurt. True. So, okay, if James Gunn was redoing it, I would maybe give it a shot. Honestly, John Carpenter, James Gunn, anybody, if you're listening, 20th Century Fox, <laughs> which I guess is now Disney and owns the right, you can send me the royalty check later. You need to make a sequel where the monster took Jack and he's been in the hell of whatever the fuck for the past 20 something years. And <laughs> there you go. His son or 
Wang's kid or somebody like Wang and Miao Yin's kid have to go fucking into the hell or whatever and bust him out. And of course, you're going to have to break Jack out halfway through the movie so you can get Jack fighting the way back out. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay with this. It would be a lot of fun. I love this movie. Like I said, this was at the end of his mainstream career before we decided to say, fuck it, I'm not doing studio films anymore. I'm going back to indie. But now we're going to jump back to 1981 with Escape from New York, which he made after making all of his money from The Fog. So yeah, Escape from New York, 1981. Rewatching this for the podcast is the first time I'd seen it since I was like 12. It was directed by John Carpenter. Who? I know, right? And uh, it was written by John Carpenter and Nick fucking Castle. So we've got Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken, so we don't have to go through his body of work. We've got Lee Van Cleef as Hawk, which it's not pronounced Hawk, but I can't read it and not say Hawk because it's Hawk. It's so weird. Or I'm just going to say Hawk. Hawk. I mean, he says Hawk, basically. Okay, thank you. Crap ton of spaghetti westerns. Yep. The whole reason that he was put in the movie was because of that. <laughs> Ernest fucking Borg Nine as Cabby. The cabbie. Um, this is the same year that he did Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. So we've covered him before. Uh-huh. Some guy named Donald Pleasance as the president. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. We know who the fuck he is. <laughs> he actually did a lot of Westerns back in the day, too. I've seen, because you know, my dad loves Westerns, and that's all I fucking watches the Westerns channel. And sometimes when I go by to visit my parents and he's watching movies and there's fucking young Donald Pleasance with a cowboy hat on. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? And you're like, Dr. Loomis? Exactly. A funny thing about Donald Pleasance, he's supposed to be the American president in this movie, right? And yeah. he did a terrible job trying to sound American, and he his British accent just came through the entire time. And he yeah. was so upset about it that he went to John and said, we need a backstory for why I'm British. And he came up with this whole story about how, like, after, you know, the war, America went back under being part of Britain and Britain was in control. So now British people could be presidents of the United States and this, 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 and that. And John Carpenter's like, huh, that's all really fascinating. I think we just won't say anything and ignore it. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> he, br- he brings it up in the commentary and he's like, Donald had this like amazing backstory for his character that he came up with all on his own. <laughs> and it was because he was really like self-conscious about you know, sounding British, he doesn't completely sound British. Uh, it, it definitely, no. it definitely shows through, especially at the end. I didn't, I didn't see this with the commentary. So when I heard that, I was like, "That's fucking awesome." That just seems like a very Donald Pleasance thing to do. Like, like, no, no, I need a story for this, you know. And uh, and then John just say, "Fuck you!" No, we just won't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. So a couple more people. We've got Isaac Hayes as the Duke. A lot of people these days maybe only know him as Chef from South Park. Right. Crap ton of stuff. Now, if you look at his writing credits, those aren't real. It's because his music was used, and he gets a writing credit for writing the song. <laughs> when I was researching, I'm like, damn, he wrote a lot. No, he didn't. He had music and all this stuff. Very <laughs> successful musician before he was yeah. acting, right? Yeah, a huge big-time musician, and from not too far from us. Josh and I even got to record at one of his studios one time. Yeah, yeah. We've got Adrian Barbo in here as Maggie, which I have beef with her character. We'll save that for the end. She was the director's wife. Of course she was in it. And that's it. I mean, I'll save it for the end. I have to mention Tom Atkins just because he's in the fucking movie. Yes. <laughs> and that's Remy. And there's much more people in this cast, but I'm going to round this out with our key characters. We've got Harry Dean Stanton as Brain. 
who was in fucking Alien, yep. Repo Man, and over 200 other fucking credits to his name. You thought you had a big number there, and then I broke out the 441 earlier. I know, right? Special effects. Surprise, surprise. Roy Arbogast. <laughs> who would have figured? It's like it's a fucking John Carpenter film or something. And what's more interesting on this, as Jesse alluded to earlier, visual effects, we had James Cameron working alongside the Skotak brothers, who they ended up all working together on several fucking movies, more so with Cameron directing after this. But most of the matte paintings in this movie were fucking James Cameron, and they look better than the ones in fucking Escape from L.A. Because those are fucking terrible. And I don't know who did them. And it, it could be somebody amazing. Hell, it could be James Cameron for all I know. I just know they look cartoony as shit. Because I had to watch that flick before doing this just so I could remember how bad it was. I, I haven't seen it since I saw it open at night in theaters. And you want to talk about going to a movie and walking out disappointed. <laughs> The thing is, you had John Carpenter directing it. You had Kurt Russell starring and John Carpenter and Kurt Russell wrote the fucking thing. And that's the biggest letdown is it is literally a remake of fucking Escape from Mel- or Escape from New York. And it sucks that that's their last film together. Yeah, but that's as much as we're going to go into that. I just had to bring it up. Yeah. Um, some behind the scenes shit before we get into the movie. They get as Jesse alluded to Metal Gear Solid. OK, so. Uh, Kojima has admitted many, many times that Snake Plissken <laughs> was fucking the inspiration for Snake, and we really see it all come together by the time we get to Metal Gear Solid. Do you remember what Solid Snake's code name is when he's undercover in Metal Gear Solid 2? Plissken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just straight up, like, fuck it. Yeah, we stole it. Yeah, two I haven't played all the way through. Now, what's funny is when Canal Plus actually wanted to sue Konami and Kojima, um, they were the ones who owned the rights to the movie when, you know, Metal Gear Solid's blowing up and shit and they're seeing dollar signs and they go to John Carpenter and they ask for his input. And uh, he said, I know the director of those games and he's a nice guy, or at least he's nice to me. And just based on that, they didn't do the lawsuit. Um, now they also got some money by suing for another film that was made that is a direct fucking ripoff of uh, Escape from okay. New York. But I just think it's cool that I that Kojima probably has had some kind of not relationship, but at least some kind of dialogue with John Carpenter, probably with as much as he loved the fucking film and wanted to steal from it. I mean, when the lawyers went to talk to John, he probably had a joint in his mouth and a fucking PlayStation controller in his hand playing the game. He's like, bitch, I know I'm playing it. (laughs) Okay, so a few more tidbits before we jump in. This movie is actually written in the 70s as a response to the Watergate scandal. John Carpenter used political undertones to make a film? I know, right? And when it came time to do this movie, they were bringing him on to do the fucking Philadelphia experiment. What? I know, right? I got to go dig it into this because it's just briefly mentioned in the commentary. And uh, he's like, no, no, no. I got this idea. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to make that. <laughs> <laughs> the eye patch was Kurt Russell's idea, allegedly. And once again, Dick Warlock, one of the many movies he's in fucking uncredited. And uh, he's in this movie a few times, not just as fucking Snake's body double. Oh, and by the way, fucking Wilbur did stunts in this movie. Oh, did he? <laughs> <laughs> yes i saw that shit this morning they call it the wilbur walk yeah so apparently him and dick warlock were actually doing stunt shit for all of carpenter's movies and just didn't get credited <laughs> yeah so fucking amazing shit so we get a typical white on black low budget opening credit and uh we get a little bit of exposition after the credits 
we see that it's 1988. And with crime up 400%, Manhattan Island is walled off and turned into the nation's maximum security prison. And this neat little CGI opening mm-hmm. thing with the map and everything is like none of that CGI. It's all old school animation because yep. they couldn't fucking afford early CGI in this shit. There's a lot more of that in this movie that I didn't realize that was just genius. So after this little bit of setup, it says 1997 now. <laughs> and what's funny is they recorded the commentary in 94. Okay. If I remember right. So it's even funnier hearing that shit like, oh man, what do you think about what's this going to happen? And then they're like talking about the skyline of New York. And I'm like, wow, I wonder how this commentary would be like if it was recorded after 2001 because it's shit's fucked up right but at any rate so we get a quick shot of two would-be escapees mowed down by fucking police chopper in their raft trying to escape the prison island and we then see remy at the liberty island command center and as it's showing him walking into the little little command pod and the camera pans by and you see the name of the liberty island blah 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 and it goes a little black and then opens back up now we're in la (laughs) so the shot of the statue of liberty there with him walking by is one of two shots of new york in the entire fucking movie And John Carpenter says he was the first person in history to get permission to film at the Statue of Liberty. And that was the first time it was done. No shit. And they had tried to bomb it a few years before that. So it was like even harder for him to talk them into it. But somehow he did. So I thought it was really cool. So we cut to Snake being processed into said facility. And uh, (laughs) they're... What you're supposed to know is that he's being taken in for his basically failed uh, robbery attempt of a Federal Reserve Bank. Hmm. All that was shot. All that was dumped. Okay. (laughs) But at least we're seeing him brought in the facility. Meanwhile, Remy and Hawk have their attention on this unknown plane back in the command center. They're like, it's not supposed to be here. What's its call sign? Its call sign's David 14. What's that? We don't fucking know. It's kind of a real space balls (laughs) vibe there. I've lost the beeps, the sweeps, (laughs) and the creeps. (laughs) And uh, they make radio contact with the pilot as they're given a Mayday broadcast. And then the security system decodes the call sign and they look at it. It says Air Force One. Holy shit. Well, then the radio transmission breaks in from the hijacker. We, the soldiers of the National Liberation Front of America, in the name of the workers and all the oppressed of this imperialist country, have struck a fatal blow to the racist police state. So... This is as preachy as this one gets compared to uh, (laughs) They Live. (laughs) Really just this and then some undertones throughout the film. So luckily, the hijackers lock themselves in the cockpit. That's just scary. I didn't even think about that. Like the hijackers hijacking the plane, locking themselves in the cockpit in New York near the Twin Towers. Like, oh, yeah. That didn't even the the cockpit part didn't cross my mind, Josh. What the fuck? So. Luckily, the president's able to escape via his egg pod. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? The plane. <laughs> well, it's this reddish orangish egg, and it, it falls out of the plane, because that's some more of that animation shit, because they couldn't afford to film this fucking crash. They only had like five million on this film, close to six, if I remember right. As he gets into the pod, we see that he's got a tracker strapped to one wrist and a briefcase strapped to the other wrist. It must be nuke codes, right? Or something. <laughs> So, of course, Hawk immediately takes the team in for a rescue mission because fucking the president's plane was just hijacked, crashed into the most violent city <laughs> in the fucking country because they've turned it into a prison. <laughs> and his egg pod went on the little screen. So he must have made it out. Let's go get him. <laughs> so they land and they're greeted by this character that's named Romero. 
who played him? I think it was Frank Doubleday. Yeah. And if you're watching it on a dark screen, like a dark laptop monitor screen, small, you swear it's Michael Bean. I could see that. <laughs> um, I'm like, what a weird role for Michael to do. And then I'm like, that's not him. When I watch it on the TV later. Here's, here's what it is for me. Like whatever, whatever darkness is inside of Christopher Walken. If it ever came out and it was just that <laughs> this character is that <laughs> I picture this as something that crawls out of him when he's had too much to drink. <laughs> He pulls out the president's severed fucking finger yes. while delivering his demands. You touch me, he dies. If you're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. If you come back in, he dies. So there are no demands. Just if you do anything, <laughs> he dies. <laughs> Please kindly fuck off. <laughs> so they take off and Hawk has to enact his plan B. So he meets with Snake, who we learn is a decorated quote unquote war hero. From World War Three, right? Yeah, yeah. And Hawk offers him a full pardon from everything he's ever done if he can rescue the president within the next 24 hours. And, of course, like you said, he's like, which president? <laughs> and Hawk's like, that's not funny, Pliskin. <laughs> the name Snake. <laughs> like, It all works, though. In a dude guy fucking 80s yeah. movie, like, fuck, fuck Rambo, fuck Commando. Like, this is like the gritty, raw, I know this dude yeah. <laughs> fucking dude guy movie. And he made sure he F-bombed quite a bit in this movie. And if you think about it, there's not a whole lot of profanity generally in John Carpenter movies with the exception of uh, James Wood talking shit and vampires. But that was mostly ad-libbed, right? Yeah. But Kurt Russell is really wanting to break his like Disney star image, right? So he's like, make me tough. So he says, fuck a bunch and shoots everybody. But I mean, he's a de facto action hero. But he goes in there with like Rambo to me in memories as a child growing up, right? Yes. But this was the cool one. <laughs> we say it all the time, but like, this is the guy you'd have a beer with. Like these, these other guys are all swole and have guns that never run out of ammo and shit. But like, this guy's real. So snake is then kitted up with weapons, a tracking beacon, a president detecting radar, a countdown timer. Oh, and many explosives in his neck. Sorry, what? Just in case he fails. <laughs> And uh, it's a pretty fucked up scene because they're just like, da, 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 da. This is the plan. And there's like this little science guy that comes over and, and is like, like, stay still. <laughs> and just shoot shit into him. And, you know, like he's a soldier. He just thinks he's getting his vaccinations before right. he goes into the scary hellhole. That's what Hulk literally tells him. He's like, there's all sorts of bacteria and shit down there on the ground in New York. You're going to need these vaccines. <laughs> exactly. So uh, they do tell him that uh, once he's completed his mission, that they can disable the explosive capsules that are now dissolving in his neck via x-ray. So the plan is to land a glider on top of the World Trade Center, hotwire an elevator on the roof, and rescue the president, along with his briefcase Mm -hmm. that contains a very important recording that they have to get to the Hartford Summit to save the fucking world. Right. So with the glider aloft, Snake hangs a left to New Jersey to see an x-ray tech. The end. <laughs> they really should they have really told them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or they should have at least so, said it takes a certain frequency or something, you know? Yeah, something, something. <laughs> that really bothers me, man. Because they make a whole bit. It's like, Snake, if you get any ideas of flying this glider into Canada, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. I was like, no, fuck that. New Jersey's right there, man. <laughs> so, uh,. <laughs> Back to what's really going on. The glider's aloft, and we see some awesome wireframe view of New York as Snake makes his approach. And they had no money. Once again, they couldn't do CGI wireframe, and it blew my mind when I found out how they did this. Yes. It is fucking cardboard boxes painted black with fucking tape on them, 
and a black light. Yep. That's all it is. <laughs> and they do the camera through the, through the model of the city yes. with the green lines. And I mean, even when you know that's what it is, it's still pretty difficult to tell. Oh, yeah. It, it looks is better than a, CG wireframe, in my opinion. If I made a movie, I needed a wireframe thing like that. I'm just going to do it that way. Because this has a standard fucking frame rate, which <laughs> even back then you couldn't do wireframe at fucking 60 frames or 30 frames a second. Listen to me, modern. And now everybody's oh, 120. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> it looked awesome then. It looks awesome now. So with the help of his grappling anchor system, he lands the fucking glider on top of the fucking World Trade Center. <laughs> Snake does manage to land the plane and sets off to try to find the president's plane. And once you see the streets of the city, we're now in St. Louis. Yep. Because fucked up St. Louis is the stand in for fucked up <laughs> New York because there was this burnt out section of St. Louis from this big ass fire that just happened to be timed just right that they could go shoot there. Yep. And it worked out great. Now, there is a dumped bit with when he's coming off the elevator about all these Indians, that they're the ones who actually own the building now, and they're the roaming gang that have taken over the World Trade Center. And that's why they get into a fight with the Indians for the glider later on in the movie. Okay. But all the shit to set that up ended up being dumped. Did you hear about they had accidentally ventured too far into, like, St. Louis gang territory? And, like, one of the gangs approached Kurt Russell, and he was in full costume. He just fucking act tough and talked them off, and they got scared and left. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. Snake Plissken scared <laughs> off a gang. So uh, John Carpenter's had to resort to bribing gangs to film a movie <laughs> and using his actor to scare them away. Well, what's funny about that is he brings it up in the commentary. He's like, I scared them away, but I was just like, I walked this way now, right? <laughs> I wish I would have watched this with commentary set. because the the Big Trouble in Little China, him and Kurt Russell are fucking hilarious doing the commentary on there. He's like, the beer stayed cold and the cigarettes didn't get stale. And this was great, John. <laughs> like, how drunk <laughs> are they right now? Did you uh, hear about the bridge that's in the movie? Yeah, yeah. It, it was in middle of nowhere, just outside of St. Louis. Well, John Carpenter bought the bridge for a dollar, and then he sold it back to St. Louis for a dollar after he was done filming the movie. But that's he had to he had to get the rights to it to film it, so he talked to him and selling him the bridge for a dollar. I did not hear about that part of it. <laughs> he just talked about them finding it. Yeah, and then he that's sold it back crazy. for a dollar. I thought that was really cool. So remember, Snake has this president tracker thing. He quickly finds the plane, and they really did bring in sections of a cut-up fucking plane without a permit in the middle of the night into <laughs> St. Louis, shot it, and got it the fuck out of there. <laughs> and uh, so his little tracker leads him past the plane and into this theater, where when he goes inside, there's some people watching these dudes performing a stage show with music provided by Nick Castle on piano and John Carpenter on violin. <laughs> if you look at the guys playing music down in the pit, it's not really a pit, but you get the, get the gist of it. And uh, Snake's just like, huh. And he goes through a side door, and this one audience member spots him. It's fucking Cabby. So Cabby follows him in, and he's like, Snake, I thought you were dead. <laughs> get ready to hear that a lot. <laughs> and uh snake's like eh. <laughs> it just keeps on going like he's like i gotta do this and i gotta go it's like it's like when you gotta take a really bad shit and a child <laughs> gets in between you and the bathroom like you're not stopping for that child unless they're bleeding you are going to make it to the toilet they can explain to you what's going on through the door right so snake continues walking right past what can only be described as an impending fucking gang rape and once again he's just gonna keep moving on doesn't concern him He's got bombs in his neck and a timer. He don't give a shit. <laughs> so a couple of baddies pop up and they're quickly dispatched. I mean, it's literally like, ja, ja, 
and that's it. They're taking out two punches. That's that's how most of the fight scenes go in this movie. Just like like two hits and we're out. So Snake then zeroes in on the president's signal. And uh, he sees the, the fucking the president there slouched over this fucking sink and some dude just wailing on him. <laughs> Throws the dude wailing on him. And he's like, Mr. President. I'm the president. Sure, I'm the president. I, I knew when I, I got this thing, I'd be president. And uh, that's, uh, what's his nuts? Something flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. That's in every carpenter flick. And it's like, well, shit. So uh, the tracker's now useless. The president's presumed dead. Snake's still told to continue the mission. And if he tries to escape, they'll kill him. All right. Well, this is bad enough. So enter the cannibals. Mm. Now, <laughs> is that the, the crazies in the sewers as they refer to them? Yes. The crazies in the sewers. Now, it was supposed to be understood that they were cannibals. So these underground dwelling cannibals just start popping up from the sewers. And like, there's all these people coming down the street and everybody's heading the same direction. And uh, Snake's like, hmm, this isn't good. So he just ducks into this diner chock full of nuts if i remember correctly is the name of the place and he runs right into his wife what kurt russell's wife really at the time really like, like pre-goldie days i guess yes well he's never married goldie yeah. they're just life partners and once she realizes that he's snake she's like i thought you were dead <laughs> do you notice that everyone in this movie that says that doesn't make it that's like a curse in this movie <laughs> this is true <laughs> so uh it looks like they're about to bone down but all of a sudden she gets yanked through the floor by cannibals and snake is set out on his way once more like oh moving on see this is what happens when i slow down shouldn't yep fucking chuds they'll get you every time honestly that makes me want to see a carpenter zombie flick he, he did a really cool job with the fucking things beating through the floor and the walls and shit Exactly. So he outruns the cannibals and he's like busting in and out of windows and crawling up and down the sides of buildings and shit. And that's all Kurt Russell. We haven't gotten to Dick Warlock yet. <laughs> but towards the end of this, he drops his fucking radio that he's able to talk to Hawk on. And like when he drops it, hits the ground, busts into pieces. He finishes hopping over this wall and fucking the roaming crazies are still coming. But fucking cabbie pulls up just in time with fucking Molotov cocktails. And he throws him at the crazies as Snake hitches a ride. And the cabbie tells Snake that Duke has taken the president and uh, he's going to take him to meet Brain because Brain works for the Duke and he could tell him where the president is. And this all happens really fucking fast yeah. in like this cabbie car ride. Cabbie's going to move us along towards our MacGuffin. <laughs> so he takes him to meet Brain. Maggie answers the door. And when she does, he's like, you got to open the door. It's Snake. Snake Plissken. <laughs> she opens the door and she's got to see him because she heard he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> They go in, and as soon as Snake sees Brain, he, he calls him by his actual name. And he's like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> we find out that they know each other, that they used to work jobs together until fucking Brain ran out on him on a job, and they actually ended up killing their other guy that was on the job. Whose name was Fresno Bob. Fresno Bob. Why would you call him Fresno Bob unless there's two Bobs? <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> So we learn that Brain is Brain because Brain is the brain of New York. If the Duke is the Duke, Brain is the brain. He fucking works for the Duke and supplies him and his crew with gas because he's got a fucking pump, pumping oil in the middle of this library that they're kicking it in. If he's so smart, how'd he get caught? He is in prison. That's a damn good question. And uh, Maggie is basically... Uh, Something to keep Brain occupied that was a gift from the Duke. So Brain's been doing the Duke's bidding. But like any other fucking prisoner, you know he wants out. And this man's smart enough to come up with a plan. And he has. 
because he's got a map of the 69th Street Bridge that shows the location of the mines that are scattered about it. Because instead of blowing up all the bridges when they made this shit a fucking prison, they just left them there and put mines <laughs> on them. A government spending at its fucking finest, am I right? <laughs> and that the Duke's plan is to march right across that fucking bridge with the president leading the way as a human shield and get everybody off the island. Yep. Duke's got a good plan. <laughs> so they actually leave where they're held up at. And they're driving around till the Duke's motorcade goes by and it's the Duke coming back to see brain. So they kind of circle back behind him and they're hidden down in this alley. Except for cabbie who goes, fuck it. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. He goes like a fucking cartoon character. <laughs> and, uh, so while the Duke is going inside, no, hang on. First we see the Duke's car. It's fly shit. It's got fucking <laughs> chandeliers on the fucking hood. And like, uh, uh, what do you call them things you put on a sconces uh, <laughs> on the sides of the car with other fucking little chandeliers? It's so fucking dope. I was going to be so upset if you didn't bring up the chandeliers hanging out the front of the car. <laughs> like, and, and the Duke's such a pimp. He doesn't even drive that motherfucker. <laughs> he has somebody else drive him and he just rides up front like a fucking man. <laughs> um, I love so much is said with his character without him saying anything. Right. I love that. You, the, the whole point gets across that he's a bad motherfucker. <laughs> <sighs> but as he goes inside to try to find brain snake manages to knock out one of Duke's crew members in another car. And it's Dick Warlock that he knocks out okay. and throws out of the car. I didn't even catch that. <laughs> and they steal that car because like I said, cabbie had already fucking bailed. He's like, Oh, it's the Duke. I don't know if you can hear my feet, but I could actually beat your feet. Anyways, so uh, Brain says we're going to take this shortcut so uh, the Duke doesn't beat us to the president's location at this rail yard. And so they have to take this like terrible street with all these fucking baddies on it. And there's a, a, a wall of cars at the end of the street. But fucking snake snake. And he fucking turns the, the station wagon around and reverses it right through this wall of cars. <laughs> and they make it to the rail yard. And Brain's like, it's, you know, the third car down, past the second fire, or past the second camp, whatever it is, because there's some people out there. And we see Snake go into one of the trains, while Brain and Maggie are distracting the crew outside. And then we see Dick Warlock running on top of the trains. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Snake snatches up the president pretty quick, but he does take an, an arrow to the knee in the process. Yep. And uh, he grabs the president and like, as soon as they get off the train, they walk like 15 feet and then they get jumped <laughs> from more baddies in the train. And a fight starts to ensue, but fucking snakes overwhelmed and the Duke walks up and brain tells Duke that, you know, oh, he, he forced us at gunpoint. What was I supposed to do? And uh, <laughs> as a case, as this twitchy does <laughs> whenever he's around snake Fliskin, And supposedly that was all Isaac Hayes. He's like, I'm going to have this twitch whenever I'm around then. Okay. <laughs> like, and of course, John Carpenter's like, all right. <laughs> and uh, Duke knocks snake the fuck out. Yeah. And says he heard he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. I want to know why everybody knows who snake is. Cause he's a bad motherfucker. <laughs> right. But do they know him from being a war hero or do they know him from Robin Banks? I think it's a little bit of both. Cause I think Hulk only mentions the one job that he got caught doing, but I guess if him and brain and poor fucking Fresno Bob were running jobs, there were more jobs then. Exactly. Like he was probably contracted at some point. That's cause he was in the super secret, like blacker than black ops programs. Yeah. So, you know, that's the kind of shit they want to keep under wraps. So he must've been a bad motherfucker. So, this is the part of the game where you wake up and all your cool shit's been stolen. Mm -hmm. 
And that's that's how we find Snake. They even took his shirt, revealing this cobra tattoo yeah. that explains the fucking name. That man's got a snake. <laughs> Which, if you think about it, he tells Hawk like, a couple times in the movie, he's like, call me Pliskin. So it's like he doesn't like the snake nickname. Yeah. So we then see the Duke toying with the president, and he's got Snake's gun. And I meant to bring this up earlier. It's like a Mac-10, and it's got this giant ass suppressor on it and a scope. And the scope is mounted to the suppressor. <laughs> I'm sorry, John, but no one would ever do that because that shit distorts and moves as it heats up. You would never mount an optic <laughs> on a fucking can. I'm just saying. Nerd. But uh <laughs> so you're just seeing the Duke shooting out of frame. No idea what's going on. And he's like laughing after he <laughs> shot, and all of his buddies are laughing shit. And we finally see he's got the president chained to this fucking wall with a briefcase still dangling from him. And he's like going cartoon style, just shooting around yep. in, in a fucking outline. And uh, it's pretty fucked up. He belittles the shit out of the president by making him call him by his moniker. What did I teach you? Uh, you, you are Duke of New, New York. You're uh, a number one. I can't hear you. You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. Because that's going to be important later. So Brain comes and sits down and Duke's like, look, motherfucker, get me my map. <laughs> right. That's what he showed up for earlier. Is he wanted the fucking map of the bridge, right? Exactly. Because this motherfucker's got a plan. So in the process of this conversation, telling him to go get the map, he's still shooting at the president and he shoots the fucking briefcase open. We see Romero walk over and he pockets the fucking tape that falls out. Keep this in mind. Mm -hmm. This is our plot device. Oh, Duke didn't notice the tape, did he? Exactly. I never actually caught that. I don't think. Like, obviously I did because I just thought of that. But I don't know. I never like went to the forefront of my mind that Duke didn't realize there was a tape. Better questions. Why didn't they think to fucking look in the briefcase that was so important that the president had a handcuffed to his wrist yet? Yeah. Well, when the president, when he's first rescued, there's some guy there with like a fucking emery board trying to fucking file through the chain. <laughs> so in true Carpenter fashion, this is where we're going to start jumping around and try to follow three stories at the same time. <laughs> so meanwhile, we've seen that Hawk has had choppers scanning the city. Nothing on radar, nothing on visual, nothing on radar, nothing on visual. And they eventually spot what looks like the briefcase in Central Park. And they land and retrieve it, take it back to the base, and inside they find only a note. And it demands amnesty for all prisoners in exchange for the president. 69th Street Bridge at noon. No bullshit or he's dead. That's the dollar bridge. <laughs> <laughs> now we actually have demands. Also, meanwhile... Brain surmises that the only way Snake could get in and out of the city with the president would be landing a glider on top of the World Trade Center. <laughs> he is a smarty ass really motherfucker. <laughs> he is. It's so funny because he's like, what would be his? I know. Because <laughs> like, he's working it out with Maggie. It's so fucking funny. Meanwhile, Snake is then forced to fight Slag. And in, in this death match for the Duke's enjoyment and slag was played by a wrestler ox, somebody I should really write more shit down, but I'll try to keep the cast small. So the whole point is for everybody to get some enjoyment out of this, because in any post-apocalyptic setting, you eventually have some kind of wrestling throw down like you ain't got fucking cable <laughs> death match. That's the next best thing you got. Right. And uh, the Duke also needs snakes head. 
mounted on the hood of his fucking car because that's what he wants to be driving in when they go across the fucking bridge. <laughs> I got a question for you. I meant to rewind the movie after I watched it. I didn't have time before we recorded. And I didn't catch this to my second viewing, so that's when I was trying to check it. But does he tell Snake that he can walk free if he wins the fight? Because if you think about it, he just walks free after this fight. I could be wrong. I'd have to double check. I don't think he does. Okay. But everybody bails because they find out that Brain just kidnapped okay. the president. That's what I was wondering. I saw that and I'm like, did he win like his freedom or did everybody just fuck off and forget Snake was there, which is really dumb in its own right. But <laughs> Which is the second plot hole, but we'll get to that. <laughs> So while this fight's going on, Snake notices that the the dude who rings the bell is wearing his fucking homing uh, bracelet with the hidden button. And the fight starts, and they start off just with bats, and Snake's getting his ass kicked. Bats with nails in it, right? Well, then they upgrade to bats with nails and trash can lids. And they're just trading blows until finally... Snake manages to get slag right in the back of the fucking head with this bat. <laughs> that shot is real. Oh. According to the commentary, something I read, and another person's remembrance of the movie that wasn't John Carpenter or Kurt Russell, they literally strapped a two by four to the back of Ox and said, uh, Kurt, you only got to swing hard enough to get a nail to stick and let him swing that fucking bat full of fucking spikes at the back of that man's head with a two-by-four being the only thing to save his fucking life. You can do that shit nowadays. The insurance. Once again, low-budget movie in the 80s. I don't think they had insurance. (sighs) But take from that what you will. It definitely was a different time. So once this is over and everybody takes off, which we'll explain in a second, Snake retrieves his tracking beacon from the baddie, and uh, gets his countdown timer back from Slag because he notices that he's wearing it because they've pilfered all of his shit. And uh, so he hits the button and the guys back at base are like, holy shit, we got a track on Snake. He must still be alive. And uh, he's looking at his timer and he's like, I have really got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so also, also, meanwhile, <laughs> Brain and Maggie go back to get the president and they've got him locked up in the suite and. Romero answers the door and they tell him it's like the Duke wanted us to come check him for cyanide capsules. Yeah. If the president kills himself, we're going to be in a really bad fucking spot. And you'll notice Romero is wearing Cabby's hat and he says that he traded him for it. It's really fucking obvious how we got it and where that tape yeah. went. I mean, even not remembering the movie from when I was 12, when it got to this part, like before the dialogue, I noticed he was wearing the hat and I'm like, He traded the tape for it. That's just how it works. It's a barter (laughs) system. Anyways, so Romero lets them in with a bit of trepidation. Mm. (laughs) And you'll notice that, of course, the president's tied up again. And Donald Pleasance has this fucking wig on. Yeah. (laughs) And this was all Donald's idea. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like, I need to be more demoralized. So what I do later makes more sense. And let's put me in a wig just, just to put that out there of how bad I'm being treated. So it really opens the door to Jesus Christ. What have they done to this man while they've had it? Yeah. Which I think that's kind of cool on his part. I don't know if it plays into this like 17 page backstory he wrote for his character <laughs> um, of, of what really put him in a position to justify his reaction later on in the film, which I would think the fucking chain to the wall and being shot at would be definitely enough for me. <laughs> I'm cutting off his finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking the man lost a digit. <laughs> So right around the time that uh, Romero and the two bad guys in there kind of realized that none of this shit starting to make sense. Brain stabs Romero and Maggie shoots the shit out of the other two guys. So now they've freed the president. 
Back over at the fight, Duke gets the news, just as Snake is defeating Slag, that Brain has run off with the president. Then this dude yells to the rest of the crew and audience, and Snake, because he's still standing down below, that Brain has kidnapped the president. Oh, that's why the Duke and all his crew just took off. So this is kind of a whirlwind of things happening all at the same time. But importantly, Snake now knows that Brain has the president. And like you said, everybody just leaves. (laughs) They just leave Snake standing in the fucking ring. I was like, surely I missed something. Apparently not. And somehow Snake knows that Brain's smart enough to know where he must have come from. Or he may have already told him he needed to get. No, he hadn't told him because they hadn't been back together yet. Yeah. So somehow Snake knows that Brain figured out that he had to have landed a glider on top of the World Trade Center. And that's where he goes. <laughs> or Snake was piecing the fuck out with the glider. He's like, fuck this. I'm going home. That Hey, I'll, that's better. That <laughs> makes a lot more sense for a fucking writing standpoint. He was going to try to find that fucking x-ray tech in Jersey you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. So just as he gets up on top of the World Trade Center, he finds Brain and Maggie fighting the Indians for the glider. And that's why there was supposed to be more of a setup, because you even have Brain say, you goddamn Redskins or whatever. And it's like, even on the, I know, and on the commentary, they're like, no, John's like trying to be PC. He's like, yeah, there's going to be a bit of dialogue here because of blah, 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 blah. But we had to dump all this. And then it gets to it. And Kurt Russell's like, goddamn Redskins. That's some funny shit, John. (laughs) Or something like that. It's like, oh, holy shit. (laughs) Like, this is definitely not recorded in the last decade. (laughs) He did something similar on Big Trouble because John's telling him about getting in trouble for like doing a Chinese movie, right? Not being a Chinese director. And right as that happens, Lopan shoots the the light out of his eyes and mouth at Kurt Russell. And he's like, yeah, because we all know that Chinese people shoot lights out of their eyes and mouths. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Oh, that's good shit. So in this whole struggle, the glider gets dropped off the side of the fucking World Trade Center. And this one shot of it falling is the cheesiest one in the movie. Like there's so much charm to a lot of the shit, given how much money they had and when it was done. But this one shot yeah. is really just bad like you can tell it's one of those fucking wooden glider airplane things you get at cracker barrel for like a dollar and they just like yeah 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 they didn't even drop it they didn't even record it falling in front of a model they just like took a picture of it and just moved the picture down you know <laughs> yes that's exactly what it looks like it does the one weird flip where none of the lighting works <laughs> we did a better job with a star picture. wars micro machines okay we did man so after they blast their way through the, the rest of the Indians, they get back on the elevator and they go back downstairs. Native Americans, Josh. You don't know if they're from Indiana or not. <laughs> Touche. Oh, for all of our listeners, one, I'm not trying to be derogatory to Native Americans anyway by calling them Indians and damn sure not Redskins. I do think the whole thing with the football team and the name for all those years and all that shit's weird shit. But uh, we do need to keep in mind that they were here first and we fucking smallpox their asses all the way to the West Coast. And that's bullshit. We should not have done that. By we, I mean Europeans. That's my lineage. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. (laughs) Tune in next week for more history with Josh and Jesse. (laughs) So once they make it back down to the lobby, Snake tries to ditch Brain. He's like, give me the fucking map. I'm getting getting the fuck out of here. And this is when Brain says he knows where the tape is. So Snake then fucking smacks the map back into fucking Brain's chest. And it's like, all right, fuck it. And they turn around and get ambushed by the Duke. And I mean, it's, it's literally that fast. They go to get in the car. The car won't start. Instead of an engine, there's one of 
the Duke's baddies. <laughs> and the Duke has this like steam rig that he's standing next to. And they talk about it in the opening of the movie that they've got cars that are powered by steam and shit like that. Is that supposed to be the engine out of that car? I've never understood what the Duke stand I don't know. with other than there's steam coming out of it. I'd have to go back and look actually. Cause I wasn't, I guess looking for it when I saw it, this part's really weird. Cause it's like, Oh no, it's a trap. We're surrounded. And then they leave. Um, <laughs> there's, there's like no major shootout. There's like a couple shots fired and they bail. And once outside, Cabby pops up and they hop in and snake pushes fucking, uh, Ernest Borg nine over and takes the wheel and he pockets the tape and another tape. If you pay attention, cause he puts one in a front pocket and one in a back pocket. God this is really making me realize like every bit of this was fucking repackaged for escape from LA. Uh, only it's the satellite controllers that are in the pockets. But anyways, so they're hauling ass to the bridge with the Duke not far behind in his chandelier pimp mobile. <laughs> and so brains navigating them through the mines and he's like left, right, stay left. And then one of these times snake doesn't fucking react fast enough. And he hits a mine and blows the cab in half, killing cabby in the process. Now, if this car looks like perfectly cut in half, mm-hmm. that's cause it was, <laughs> and they had to, they had to film this twice. They fucked it up the first time and then they had to reuse the now torn apart car for the other shot. So that's why there's not a lot of coverage of that. And regardless, fucking anti-personnel minds don't blow cars in half, but that's a whole <laughs> other rabbit hole we could go down. How do you know there weren't anti-taxi cab minds? <laughs> so now on foot. The group moves on. Oh, brain just blew up. Um, <laughs> exactly. Because brain's like, no, you got to go. Boom. <laughs> and Maggie's pissed. Yeah. Maggie stops. She's like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't want to be with him, but I've been with him. And he was going to get us out of here. And I was going to like, at least get a fucking picket fence in suburbia or something. Is that the Duke? <laughs> She cared about him. I do too. So while Maggie's having all this internal struggle, Snake's like, and the wall's this way. (laughs) He just (laughs) keeps walking. And Maggie's like, fuck it. And she just fucking stands there and starts unloading on the Duke's car as he's just hauling ass down the road, missing every mine somehow. And (laughs) fucking plows right into her, hitting another car. And then it cuts to a shot of the Duke looking down after he gets out of the car. And then he moves along. That was in the original cut. Okay. And they looked at it, and John Carpenter's like, holy shit, we never saw her dead body. And fucking says, Adrian, we got to go down to the garage. (laughs) (laughs) And fucking takes her down to the garage and gets the one shot of her bloodied on the ground with the car over. That was shot in in his fucking garage. I was looking at your notes, and I thought you meant like the garage at the studio. You mean literally the Carpenter family garage at the house. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. So then we do get to see what the Duke sees, thankfully. So while all this commotion has been going on, the fucking United States police force has fucking, (laughs) of course, seen all this commotion on the bridge. With Charles Cyphers, by the way, he was the secretary of state in the film, if we didn't say that earlier. I didn't. But yes, it is Charles Cyphers. So Hawk radios Cronenberg and tells him (laughs) to get some peeps to the fucking wall station 19. I think if I remember the number correctly, because you see it spray painted on the wall at the end of the bridge. You got the president coming up to the wall right behind him. You got snake being like, I got this motherfucker to you. And right behind him, you got the Duke like, I'm going to kill both you motherfuckers. So they get to the wall and you see the cops on the other side of the wall with this winch system to pull people up. And it's really neat because when you're on the city side of the wall, it's St. Louis. And then when you're on the police side of the wall, 
it's LA. Okay. <laughs> Which is fucking cool. And they get the they get the president harness up and winch his ass up to the top. And uh, as soon as the president gets up there, the Duke starts blasting the shit out of everybody. He shoots the cops that are up on top of the wall. He misses the president and he misses fucking Snake. So with a minute 32 left <laughs> on Snake's lifetimer, he dives down on the Duke, fucking beats his ass a little bit, gets his gun away from him. And he runs back over to the wall and grabs onto the rig, and he's getting winched up by the guys, the cops on the ground on the other side. They didn't get shot. And he's a, a few feet up, and then the president fucking hits the brake on the winch. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck, man? And this the Duke looks up, and he's like, oh, you motherfucker. And he grabs the gun, and he goes to blast Snake. The fucking president's fucking Snake Plissken trap works. <laughs> and he starts blasting the bejesus out of the Duke. The Duke. Way <laughs> number one. But with the Duke fucking shot to shit, Snake comes over the wall and <laughs> he runs right up to Hawk and the science guy because they just show up with a truck and X-ray machine. And he turns over the tape and he gets his bomb diffusing X-ray and it was toyed with actually getting rid of that in the script. And just being like, yeah, we lied to you. We, we knew we knew you'd do whatever we said if we told you that we put explosives in the <laughs> And they didn't stick with that. They wanted to actually get the release of it. But then, like you said earlier, they did use it that way and fucking escaped yeah. from L.A. But they forgot about the hologram. <laughs> I did some brief digging. I don't know if you've ever read any Suicide Squad comics or know anything about Suicide Squad or watched the recent movie. The movie, yes. Okay, so you know they're they're <laughs> villains and they got bombs in their necks. They'll blow their fucking head off if they don't listen. Yeah. So I was curious what came first, Escape from New York or the Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad came out okay. in 59. However, oh, I don't know when the bomb in the next thing started. I doubt in the 50s they had that in the comics. Yeah, that would have been against the comic code, I think. <laughs> so maybe for updates for the next episode, I'll do some research to see when the Suicide Squad added the bombs into the next because I want to know what came first. <laughs> That's awesome. So we then see the president getting cleaned up to go on TV. Mm. We see Snake ask the president what he thinks about the people who died trying to save him. And it's real fucking obvious that he gives two shits because he's like, oh, yeah, they're good people, too. I'd love to thank him if they were here, but he's like checking his makeup right at the same time. Yeah. And, and you see Snake kind of get deflated like he's that's what he expected. But he at least he really at least asked. Yeah. But he's like, yeah. Yeah. Because okay. the president told me to give him any reward he wanted for saving his life. He's like, I just want a minute of your time. Yep. And uh, so he goes walking off and uh, Hawk stops him. And he's like, you know, uh, you know, we could really use you. You should really join up with us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Snake goes to to take a drag off of his self-lighting cigarette. And that gag never worked out, so it never made it into the movie. But there's this whole thing on the commentary about how in the future they're going to have self-lighting cigarettes. So that was John Carpenter's wet dream. Yes. <laughs> and they ran out of time and money to actually get it in the movie. And then they didn't fucking do it in L.A., which I got so mad. <laughs> like, come on, man. We're like way in the future now. Why can't we have a self-lighting cigarette? But anyways, of course, Snake is not going to join the police force. Mm -hmm. he's, fuck you, Hawker. He's on him. He's on He lights a cigarette and he goes on his merry way. But we cut back to the president going on TV with his hands behind his back because he's still got the fucking chains on him. And uh, he builds up this great announcement that he has for everyone. He turns around and he hits play on the tape so the world leaders can hear the good news. And it's the American bandstand. <laughs> <laughs> We then cut back to Snake, still walking away, 
tearing apart the real tape that is completely recoverable, but I'll let it go. If they find all the pieces. Well, he's just put, it's magnetic tape, man. Just pull that shit back up. But anyways, (laughs) credits. And it's such an iconic shot of him walking away with that smug look on his face, pulling out the tape, which is, which is so good. And it's, it's a cool statement of, you know, let's just let the world burn. Yeah. What, what are we saving this world for? For you? Fuck it. That was his <laughs> fuck your president, fuck your war, basically, right there. Exactly. And it, it's because he felt disenfranchised from World War Three and being a hero and fighting and doing all these great things. And then the country just didn't give a fuck. And it was just basically the, the rich world leader squandering the earth, basically. It was supposed to be the plot that, that puts Snake in the disposition that he's in. Yep. And it it's the the more things change, the more they stay the same. And this this was a a little bit tongue in cheek mm-hmm. with the the political notes compared to you know later on they live. Yeah. But it, it at its core, it's a dude guy movie. I can't believe I didn't watch it in the past few decades. <laughs> it's it's still a fun ride. The story simple as shit. There's not a lot of dialogue. We just kind of move along. There's a couple of plot holes. Like, why didn't he just fly the glider in New Jersey? <laughs> but, okay, now Maggie. He put his wife in the movie, but aside from shooting the two baddies when they rescue the president, when her brain rescued the president, her character, you could erase her from the movie and nothing changes in the plot. That's true. I felt like she gave us the extra moving moment at the end on the bridge when she was sad that brain was dead. Right. And started shooting at the Duke. I'll give you that. Yeah. She brings some humanity to it. I think there's something I need to get off my chest though. Um, (laughs) There we go. I think that's the real reason. (laughs) I think that's the real reason she might've been in the movie. It was for a bit of eye candy and she's not bad in the movie or anything. She's a fantastic actress, but it was a very limited part for her. And honestly, if you look at all the people that are in this movie that are in like a lot of John Carpenter shit through the years, you would have thought this was more like an 87 or 89 movie where he just did the throwback and brought everybody back in. But this is 81. This is only three years after Halloween. And he crammed all his friends into yeah. the movie, right? Friends and family in yep. this case. Yeah. He got them all in there. And and the reason I bring that up is, is because I, I, I gushed about how cool he made everything on set with her during the filming of the fog. Yeah. And, And I was reading about how people are like, oh, you just put your wife in the movie, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, 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 no. If you're going to say the man just crammed his wife into a movie, it would be this one before it would be The Fog. Yeah, because she is irreplaceable in The Fog to me. Yeah, totally. But a super fucking fun ride. The sequel's garbage. Metal Gear Solid is fucking awesome. Help Metal Gear back on the NES, which it was actually on... Oh, what's the other console? It was on a different console before the NES. Fun games. I'm glad we have them. Do you remember the Tiger handheld one that I had that like used to borrow from me? Oh, like you would borrow it. I wouldn't oh get it back God. for like a week or two. We couldn't beat the fucking thing. That game was so hard, man. The fucking grenades would roll and you'd like hit the arrow and he just wouldn't move. Because all you had to do was move left or right to not be in the grenade. Yeah, and it wouldn't fucking you have move. no options. <laughs> you still won't do it. Um, so it, it's a great thing to go back to. Um, it's a fun, like you say, turn your mind off fucking mm-hmm. movie and just have some fun. Um, it's more my kind of action flick. And I think it really embodies what we're trying to do here in, in this multi-part episode of, you know, John Carpenter is one of the masters of horror, but he really did a lot of action and he never really veered off into schlock. Like so much of this stuff could have been so full blown camp. Yeah. 
like full blown schlocky. Like Big Trouble's got great camp, but it doesn't go full blown schlock. It, right. That movie would be terrible if it went full schlock. And it just goes to show that, you know, a lot of these people that are like, you know, like I, I said in the Wes Craven episodes, like, oh, we need a nightmare scene. You're the nightmare guy. Like, I don't think Carpenter's been pigeonholed that bad. Mm-mm. And because he he made himself like impossible to do that. He's like, have you seen Big Trouble in Little China? Have you seen fucking Starman? Have you seen yeah. <laughs> like, and, and he it, got them all out quick. Right. And and the studios were always wanting him to recreate Halloween where he spent very little money, made a shit ton of money and revolutionized a genre. And he never did that again. And arguably Halloween was his only like super good horror movie. In my opinion, I feel like he was better at the campy action sci-fi movies than he was at the horror. And I don't mean it in a bad way because I fucking love Halloween. It's my favorite horror movie of all time. And he (laughs) fucking made it. And and the fog has some creepy shit in it. I love Christine. He did an awesome job with Christine. He was doing, you know, a Stephen King novel, but he, he did the film version fucking amazing. But I don't know. Other than Halloween, I always come back to these two movies. That we just covered in vampires. Yes. Vampires has vampires in it, but it's a dude action flick. Yeah. It's James Wood talking shit and fucking <laughs> fighting vampires. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the same kind of thing. And I feel like this is what he excels at. And I would, I just want another one. Anything. Yeah, Totally. Now, we will get into some more creepy shit of his when we get off into Lovecraft. Yeah. But that that's as horror as the man got and and The Thing. I mean, The Thing just transcends like five genres yeah. in, in one fucking flick. But it's a heavy-hitting sci-fi action movie at the same time, too, right? Like, yeah. even they live. Like, it's trying to go full sci-fi, and you got fucking Roddy Piper and Keith David fighting for seven minutes, right? Like, it's a fucking action movie. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe maybe that is the key takeaway of his films is that, you know, he's a master of horror, but he's 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 more the master of taking all this shit that shouldn't work and weaving something through it and it works. I feel like he's also the master of planting seeds for things without having to go back and explain it to you and you get it. Yeah, without beating you over the head with it. Right, right. Or you get it enough to write off things, but not in a way because it was a plot hole. Like, nobody gave a fuck about Michael Myers' backstory in the original Halloween. He was the fucking shape. He was evil. He was the blackest eyes. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and that was the mistake they made with the sequels without him involved. Was They kept trying to do the backstory. It's the mistake Rob Zombie made, trying to do the backstory. And, and you didn't need any of that. It just worked. And he does that a lot in these kinds of movies, too. Like... Yes, there's the crazy spit out three minutes of exposition in, in 30 seconds and in big trouble a couple of times, right? But for the most part, I don't question anything. I didn't question Donald Pleasant's fucking accent. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need it. But I feel like it, it's because he's good at telling a story. Yeah. Well, and good in, in taking you along for the ride. Like, this is what it is. It makes no excuses. It makes no apologies. It just, it is what it is. Hop on or get the fuck out. And, and seeing him say things like, I don't give a fuck if you think you kill movies. We're just going to have fun making this or working for a big studio. Same as working as an independent company. They just give me more fucking money. I feel like that attitude, he just made whatever the fuck he wanted. And I feel like unlike a lot of directors we covered, he somehow got away with very limited studio interference. 
Yeah, because that's something that in in covering him previously and and on this, I didn't run across. Well, this was supposed to happen, and the studio came in and fucked things up. You hear a little bit of it, or they made him go shoot an exposition scene, right? Because they wanted yeah. something explained. But you, you don't really hear any of that. And I'm sure it happened a little bit more than you hear. But it's like with Halloween, right? Like, that's what he got famous for and what everybody wanted him for. And Mustafa Akkad and Erwin Yablans just kind of fucking let him do his thing. Yeah. And he printed money with it, right? And like we said, he fucked himself making his next horror movie because he revolutionized the horror genre. And he tried to make a pre-Halloween horror movie because that's what he grew up on. And... People wanted that every fucking time. And I think they were like, well, the, the elements, we just let him do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. And almost all of his movies bombed. And almost all of them are cult fucking classics with huge followings. Yeah. Now that last part says a lot. I think one more thing we need to touch on here is Deborah Hill. Most of these movies are Deborah Hill productions. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like going back to Wes Craven with, uh, Marilyn Madalena and Craven Madalena films. And like, that's, that's kind of their thing that they set up and ran. And it's another story of a director, writer, director mm-hmm. of like you said, going like, Hey, give me a little bit of money. Let me do what I want. You know, sometimes I, I win you a big nut to crack. And sometimes we just move the boat a, a little farther downstream. And then always called in friends to help. He'd called Nick Castlin to help write new music. He'd call Tommy Wallace to help do stunts and do music. He'd have Tommy Wallace do second unit directing. Fucking, he randomly made Nick be the goddamn shape, right? Like, he talked friends (laughs) into doing shit because they all went to film school together. And even after they were famous, they still fucking helped each other a la carte, it seems, with movies, for the most part, right? And, And there's something to be said to always be working with the same team, too. Oh yeah, because then you you know each other, you know know what each other wants, what each other can do. You're going to get shit done faster. I know I beat the shit out of this dead horse, but it's back to Kevin Smith, where Hollywood told him, "Kevin, this is not about making movies with your friends." And he was <laughs> like, "It's not," and that's been his thing. And I think Carpenter, you know, I think Smith owes that to Carpenter to a certain degree. Where from what we've seen with Carpenters, that's what he did. Like, I'm going to make movies with my friends. <laughs> it's just insane also when you watch his earlier flicks like yes i love big trouble in little china but escape from new york came on 81 that was five years earlier and you think of the amount of action flicks that took things from him not not like ripped them off i meant like you can tell there were just fucking generations of horror and action directors inspired by john carpenter i mean even james cameron doing matte paintings for john carpenter had to have picked up some shit before he made terminator terminator could have been a carpenter movie if you ask me you're damn right it came and he did it right after this yeah yeah i know so i mean i, I feel like even cameron in the early days was learning shit from carpenter and, and there's other people that are like that too and it just kind of sucks because john carpenter is really famous among horror and genre fans but he's not as big as james cameron but he should be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, your average, you know, movie maker or, or average average connoisseur doesn't really make sense. But I think you know most people don't like, oh yeah, yeah, he's one of them horror guys. Like, no, yeah. no, no. Like he he's an he's an industry guy that took what he could from the system from the inside without getting absorbed by it. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, if he only made one more movie, I know he's getting old and he wants to just do music now, but if he only did one more movie. I fucking hate Westerns. I want to see a John Carpenter Western. Make your last movie be your fucking dream and fucking let your wings fly, John. You know what I'm saying? 
<laughs> Fuck it, I'd see it. I definitely would see it. He'd make me like Westerns. <laughs> and I seriously doubt we'll get another movie out of him at all. Like, I don't think he's going to direct anything else. It'd be cool if he did some screenplays because, you know, he has some movies out that he just wrote and he didn't direct them. Just fucking do it. I mean, he's got a really good relationship with Blumhouse Pictures and Jason Blum. Just write a script and let Lee Winnell fucking direct the movie, right? Like, <laughs> or whoever, but somebody who's currently working at, at Blumhouse. I'm I'm okay with with Lee Winnell doing it. I don't I, I like his directing more than his writing. <laughs> so this is a good match. <laughs> Speaking of which, I would have to pull some more facts on it. I don't remember who had the rights to redo Big Trouble in Little China, but it fell through. And then Blumhouse has the rights to remake it now. And Lee Winnell <laughs> is set up as the screenplay writer with the option to direct. I don't remember what director he was taking it from. I read all this earlier today. I'll pull it up and I'll give you guys updates in the next episode. But that was like two years ago and you haven't heard shit. Granted, we've had COVID for the past about two years. Yeah. But I don't know. There's a chance they'd remake Big Trouble in Little China. Honestly, out of all his movies, that's probably the one I'd want to see remade the least. Like I said, my sequel yeah. idea, I'm waiting on my royalty check. Call me, guys. I'll help. And <laughs> it would be fun. But I don't know. I, I was making a joke earlier, but I bet Lee Winnell could direct the shit out of a uh, Carpenter screenplay after thinking of some of his action-type movies like Upgrade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Upgrade was fun. But I'm so glad that we finally got to cover John Carpenter because we've talked about it, I think, since year one. I mean, we had to have because, I mean, when I – asked you to help me do this podcast i started out talking about slashers and fucking halloween and carpenter yep. right like we we've wanted to do it for years i've been scared to do it a bit or having kids and things happen and whatnot but <laughs> we finally got to do it we did it over three episodes i think this is the first director we've gone three episodes on yeah i feel like we did a great swath of his career quite frankly yeah yeah and and some roads less traveled for uh the pigeonholed horror yeah, because, I mean, Halloween, that was done. We already we did it twice, technically, right? <laughs> we want to yeah. count the first few episodes, which were almost a completely different show. But I went into it a bit there, and then we did it in Halloween. And in this one, I mean, we started with Christine and The Thing. Yes, The Thing is one of his more prominent movies, but I also feel like that one gets talked about. I, I don't know. I just see it getting mentioned less online than a lot of other movies, unless people start talking about practical effects and it always comes up. Right. And nobody yeah. ever talks about Christine. And then the second episode, I did the fog because everybody always talks about it. And I was like, I don't remember liking this movie and I didn't really like it. It took me like three times to medium like it, but it was a good dissection of his career. I felt like, especially looking at the window it was in and you did, they live, which I don't know. That's just a super carpenter flick to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got to do this episode where we did two action movies. Granted, one of them had monsters and a little bit of fantasy and magic, right? So it was a little bit more like on the on the genre side of our show. Well, fuck, all of his movies are genre, even Escape. But Escape is pretty much just a just a fucking action flick, right? Yeah. And I don't know. There are directors that will make a movie. James Wan, for example, beloved horror director. People fucking hate Aquaman. People fucking hate Fast and the Furious, <laughs> right? Like, they're not going to become Fast and the Furious fans because he did a couple of them. They're yeah. not going to become Aquaman fans because he did them, right? But John Carpenter, I feel like people go out of their comfort zone into other genres to see his movies. Granted, this is this is past tense because he hasn't made anything in a while, but 
I don't always see every action shoot 'em up movie. Sure as fuck would have saw Escape from New York if it came out this weekend. Oh yeah. Right. Like you just told me it's Johnny Carpenter, it's got Kurt Russell and, and guns in it, and I would have been sold. And that's without <laughs> ever seeing the the one we have now. So I don't know. I just I feel like he's influenced genre directors and heavy hitting directors as well across the board. And he's changed the action and horror genres. And I don't know, he's just a dude trying to have fun. I feel like, and at least we get music out of him right now. At least we get his thoughts in the hopefully final Halloween trilogy. But in, in this current Halloween trilogy, we'll have to see Halloween kills here in, in four months to see how that goes down. But they at least have him as a creative consultant and doing the soundtracks and whatnot. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. I want to see another movie out of the guy. I know he's getting up there in age and he just rocks out with his kids. Right. But. I don't know. If you could do something, give, give us some screenplays, John. We love your work. And honestly, I don't know if I'd be a fan like I am now if it wasn't for John Carpenter. <laughs> That's a lot to say. I have three super memorable movies growing up as a child. Halloween. I know it's fucked up to say. <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China and Star Wars. Like those were my three most influential movies to me. And I wore those three fucking movies out. And John Carpenter made two of them. Yeah, there you go. So even though I have more horror movies from some other directors that I might like, and I'm like the horror guy, the only reason why I even wanted to go to film school when I was younger was because fucking John Carpenter made awesome flicks. So keep them coming. We can't wait to cover some more John Carpenter movies on other episodes that we didn't squeeze in here, but we can squeeze in other categories. But that's it for the John Carpenter series. So you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode where we cover some more lighthearted horror movies. We're the Monster Squad. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. If you want to create something and make something and focus on it, you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it.